everyone. Thanks for tuning in to Power Athlete Radio. Derek Woodski believes that engaging with people beyond the whirlwind of social media does two things. It holds both the mentor and the mentee accountable for the basis of their training methods, or lack thereof, and it also provides a forum to connect with a community and an experience that you couldn't otherwise create online. We could not agree more. This is why we were pleased to have Derek Woodski speak at last year's symposium. When people come together for a common goal, history is made. As Woodski puts it, your legacy is not your single moment in time. It's not a champion's fleeting seconds on a podium. Your legacy is taking what you learned from your success and imparting it on others. This is episode 281. Our Athlete Nation, what is up? It is time for another episode of the Premier Podcast in... Strength and conditioning. Ing, 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 ing. That was my powerful ing. ing. You're ing. in it. You're on it. You're in it. I'm in it, it to today. win it. Yes. Yes, John, I'm, you are. I'm in it to Ladies win and it. gentlemen, special guest John Wellborn is joining us. Oh, <laughs> thank you. I, you know, I, I love that we have Power Athlete Radio featuring special guest John Wellborn. It's great. Isn't our special guest also going to join us for the Power Athlete Symposium? Yes, sir. <laughs> December 7th, 8th, and 9th in Austin, Texas, the premier symposium in strength and conditioning in, in, in December in Austin. Yeah. Right? So, ladies and gentlemen, if you are interested in the symposium and our just absolutely stellar lineup, events.powerathletehq.com to get your tickets and get out to Austin and get on the Power Athlete Ranch and get coached by the sharpest dudes and dudettes that we know to hear firsthand from these individuals. You're going to hear why that's so important with today's guest. But get there, events.powerathletehq.com, get your tickets. Hit us up with questions, events at powerathletehq.com. But it's also giving season, people. We are in, we are catching stride in our fundraising efforts for Wade's Army. Tex, talk to me. So we are one month away from Wade's Day, November 12th. And that's our day. That's our Super Bowl. Essentially, we raise money leading up to this event. And it's a day to celebrate the life of young Wade DeBruin, who passed away of neuroblastoma when he was about two and a half years old. And that really hits home for us. And this is a fundraising effort we've been putting together for the past seven years. And we're really kicking ass and we're excited. So the Power Athlete Symposium, all proceeds will go towards Wade's Army. And that money, we go into, we have a a few initiatives that we're, we're fundraising this one. And one of the most what I'm most excited about is putting in kitchens into children's hospitals. Yeah, we ran into a deal where we, you know, we were trying to go out and fund some studies on nutrition and a few other things. But unfortunately, some of the things that we wanted to do weren't necessarily priorities for some of the others. So we figured what's something that we can really sink our time and efforts and our resources into and uh, something close to home. And that's uh, teaching the parents and uh, not only how to cook better, but also to have some, uh, you know, kitchens on staff at these hotels so that they can actually prepare the meals there and not just have to eat awful hospital food. Uh, There's a joke about awful hospital food because it's really true. Uh, you know, anybody that's been to a hospital, it makes airplane food look uh, gourmet, and it's just how it works. So by putting some uh, kitchens in place and helping to build that piece, we can start to kind of chip away at the wall and uh, increase nutrition, and it's really become our fundraising initiative. Yeah. So head to wadesarmy.org, and if you are looking to donate directly, give.classy.org slash wade. And, um, yeah, we'll look forward to seeing you and uh, get your dope T-shirt and join the Army. So we're happy to have you. And uh, 
without further ado, we got our man Derek Woodsky, uh, you know, power athlete alum and also alum of the Power Athlete Symposium on the line, and we are going to rock it. So Derek Woodsky, Power Athlete Radio alumni, episode 214, and I believe. Power Athlete Symposium. Alumni. Alumni. That's right. What's new, man? We've been peripherally aware of one another over the interweb and social media, but what are you up to, man? You know, as far as work goes, very much the same thing. Uh, still working overseas with uh, the Saudi royal family. Things definitely in Saudi Arabia politically have been a little bit different the last uh, uh, 13 months. You know, so as somebody that has sort of watched a lot of changes going on over there, some of it, you know, rightfully so, makes me a little nervous. Uh, some of it, I hope, is progressive for the country, but, you know, Female drivers, you know, it's interesting. Is that the part that makes you nervous? That is actually not the part that ah, makes me nervous. Okay, okay. I just, yeah. I yeah, you, you know, what, what makes me nervous is still carrying a Canadian citizen passport. Mm-hmm. Even though I'm a permanent resident down here, we had a, uh, like, basically, our person on the ground in Saudi Arabia in Riyadh pulled this move about a month and a half ago, they decided to criticize the social policies of the country they were working in as a dignitary on Twitter. Mm. Mm. And so even though it seems like politically that's become the thing to do, they, uh, it really sort of created some, some strange tensions of, of all things between Saudi Arabia and Canada. No kidding. A tweet. We live in a world where 140 characters got somebody kicked out of the country for life. And uh, something like, if I remember correctly, what the numbers between four and 6,000 Saudi Arabian students that are attending uh, Canadian universities had all of their federal funding cut by Saudi Arabia and were asked to return to the country. Mm-hmm. Wow. I think on your what pod- was the tweet? Uh, so basically, if I remember correctly, what had happened is, you know, Canada, for better or worse, they always want to play the uh, play the part of the country that is like very righteous and civil rights and very righteous in human movement context. So there's been a couple um, protesters from Saudi Arabia that I, I think they either use Twitter themselves or do some other stuff like that have been put into jail for, for different crimes. Well, this, this dignitary from Canada wrote that on Twitter that they need to be freed like immediately, almost in a threatening manner. Like this is unacceptable. This needs to be dealt with. The country needs to act now right or Or else and that's even the canadian dignitary was criticizing saudi arabia who had put protesters like in jail in jail yeah and then the self-righteous canadian uh pointed a finger on twitter and said that they they need to be released immediately yes and it was uh and it was very much an or else type of statement right and, you know, okay, so even if this, uh, this person from Canada is correct in their assumption, and I, and I don't have all the facts on the person from Saudi that was put in jail, but hypothetically, say they were correct. Since when does world politics and threats happen on Twitter? Yes, that, that is true. And, and I mean, we're talking about the, the 
the era of Donald Trump and social media and making, uh, you know, verbose <laughs> threats on everything yeah. from uh, nuclear weapons to, you know, uh, shaming people for their outfits. I mean, he that like, is a fact. Uh, I have uh, never, I mean, first of all. But it's no different, so I I'm just amazed that, first of all, anybody in Trump's, like, anybody within the political arena even has Twitter. I would be like, do you have Twitter? You need to delete that shit immediately. Yes. I Like, you know, and not because I'm doing the right thing or the wrong thing, but I just don't have Twitter. Because to me, Twitter, fuck, I haven't had a good thought in under 140 characters. Mm -hmm. I really haven't. Like, not something that should be of any significance to world geopolitics. I think that there's a way to make uh, obscure and, um, I guess you could say, ironic statements on Twitter. Like, Mm -hmm. I try to make, like, odd movie references if I'm going to put anything out there. But uh, (laughs) trying to actually... Change the world. Uh, yeah, change the world or put some form of like social progressive movement together in 140 characters. Uh, just feels kind of. Well, I think doing any of that over outside of face to face or e- at least voice voice to ear, right? Would that be yes. it, you, right. reading a, uh, any sort of statement, email, text message, tweet? You don't you're not in the appropriate download mode. You don't know what filter no. that's going through, regardless nope. of the intent well, of the message. And twi- and- Twitter's become a really interesting haven for people to uh like um, almost uh and I think we had um what was the name of the of the uh Jason Whitlock, remember uh mm-hmm. the sportscaster yep. mm-hmm. from Kansas City, we had Jason Whitlock on and he's like honestly the amount of flame fight battles that I get into on Twitter is unbelievable because uh Twitter is like the land of the social justice warrior. And like, yes. it's just, it, it's become like this cesspool of society. I actually thought when Twitter, Twitter started that it had great legs because yep. I figured it would be about short, like blurbs of information. But I think, uh, I think this social media experiment mm-hmm. has really fucking gone awry. But I think it can be. I think you, I know I have friends who are big Twitter guys and you just find the right accounts. Right. And, uh, you know, maybe you create your own little echo, uh, echo chamber, right? Is that what they call it? Yep. Uh, but, I mean, they're not looking for extreme. It's more so for sports. Like they, they use it mostly for like sports updates. and sports Absolutely. And stuff. Like I've always looked at those mediums of social media they border always on entertainment for me because you can make those little right. quips, you can make those little headlines. Like to me, Twitter's always been basically the land of headlines, things yeah. that catch your attention and get your thought thinking about something else. Well, and, like a, like polarizing information, things well, like, yeah. uh, um, you know, I, I was laughing with the uh, Elon Musk smokes marijuana. Gone viral. Like literally like that exploded. And I was like, yeah on Joe Rogan's podcast in California where it's Tesla legal. shares drop 11%. Uh, they, he lost $3.9 billion because for he taking a hit, hit off a joint that's legal in California. Yep. And, and that's where things get really fucked up. So it's like, and, and as you know, having friends from the North and your family, Canada has a tendency to, to border the, the social justice line a little yeah. too tight, you know, and, and what I found in my, in my parents, you know, they're relatively conservative folks still live up there. What my dad thought was really strange about it was Canada was using the very medium to make a massive statement and all of Canada in the media fucking hates Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. Well, right. Uh, the irony was so thick. Yeah. Uh, how do they feel about Trudeau? Well, that's actually a good question. If you had asked me that a year ago, the man could do no wrong. 
now swings, huh? things are changing because promises were made. I mean, you can even get really political without me getting on a soapbox, but you had a guy that ran his entire campaign on the concept of improving the quality of life for indigenous people in yeah. Canada. Yeah. And he has done jack uh-huh. shit. You know, little known fact, my uncle Ed, uh, who my brother's named after, uh, used to date Trudeau's mom. No kidding. Yeah. How, how funny is that? That's a small so that, world. Yeah, that was. Uh, so I remember when he came out, like um, uh, when, when he was running, like I remember my aunt was like, oh, you know, and like, you know, kind of this little like, you know, interesting little tidbit. And so I've always kind of watched. And uh, um, I actually kind of in the beginning uh, was kind of a fan. And uh, now I think he's a fucking moron. And I yeah. think he's full of shit. Yep, because my dad's quite conservative. So when he first won, my dad was really concerned. And I remember being like, well, he's young. Maybe he's progressive. Let's see what happens. Yeah, typical. Sure. I'm like, let's see if he's, you know, is good or bad. We don't know yet. But knowing full well that, you know, 18 years ago, I was at the Kokanee Beer Summit in Crescent, British Columbia. And basically, it was a two-day free-for-all of free beer held by a brewery. Like, the biggest shit show I've ever been at in my entire life. Sounds like Oktoberfest. Yeah, it sounds like Oktoberfest. And so Trudeau was there, and he had given a presentation. He wasn't anything other than famous at the time, no big deal. Well, it comes out like a month ago in the news that apparently at, you know, this Kokanee Summit Fest, he groped a reporter, a female reporter. 18 years ago. 18 years ago. And, and it's just shit like that because maybe a year ago he fired a key member of his staff just for accusations that weren't true. And then here we got this guy that's ass grabbing some, some female reporter because Mm -hmm. of his status in life. And people were kissing his ass because he was the next hope for a liberal left Canada that was going to change the world. And now we're $30 billion in debt people getting kicked out of Saudi Arabia. And the only deal that hasn't been canceled between Canada and Saudi is a giant arms deal making weapons. Wow. It's all bullshit, right? So, yeah, so short, long story short, yeah, I wish that uh, some uh, politician from Canada didn't have a Twitter account. <laughs> <laughs> That's crazy. So does that affect you directly because you hold a Canadian passport? You know, at first I thought it might, but it doesn't look like it will. I think, you know, like everything nowadays, a lot of people politically, they want to fight things with money. Uh, so Saudi Arabia's way of trying to, you know, basically have issues with Canada over their their voice is to pull money out of the Canadian economy. Sure. What I thought was interesting, and I think what a lot of people in North America have a tendency not to realize, both here and, and up north, is how much foreign capital is used on a daily basis to run our economies. And so, you know, they were looking at something in the neighborhood of uh, 16 million, something like that was going to be immediately lost from those students this year alone. Like, and those universities did not want to have that news, you know? What, uh, you know, uh, what people don't realize is Canada through, you know, the Northwest Territories and the amount of like uh, refining that they're doing, a lot of that stuff is kind of a symbiotic relationship with the Saudis and OPEC. Mm-hmm. And there's like a weird kind of, I mean, if, if you were to go do some research on it, I think so. But the uh, the interesting thing is, and and I've, I have no uh, knowledge of this outside of just reading that like, you know, Saudi Arabia is one of the largest uh, violators of human rights in the world. Right. Um, yeah. And that's very much in the news constantly. So I, you know, and I see that statement constantly, but, or, you know, with, but uh, there's never really anything specific. 
Like yes. they just they make these points, but because the Saudis do a really good job of managing uh, the information that's going out and what kind of happens, and I think they uh, you know they control a bunch. That when you hear these statements, it's never like uh, you know like with it never follows with specifics. It's just a statement made, and I always thought that was kind of interesting. It is. And and I think you see it as well in countries like Russia, um, anywhere where I think you have a state run media, to some degree, you're going to have a little bit of that vacuum. The thing that I do find interesting, um, and it's funny that we are, we are talking about politics, because I, I'm typically not a huge political guy in terms of a lot of different statements. But it, it does seem that we have a tendency to write the media for other countries the way that we need it to sound to our people, which is fine. I think every country does that to a degree. So for example, when I went over to Saudi five years ago, I really was expecting the worst every single day. I thought that I'd have to like keep my head down and not speak and not be noticed, which is almost impossible to do when you are the ethnic minority of 0.01% in a, in a Muslim nation. Um, so there are things like you do stand out. There's nothing I can do about it as a, as a Scandinavian, you know, albino, I'm about as obvious as it gets. So I was really worried that if, you know, someone's going to have an issue with the West, I'm going to be such an easy target, you know, and it's funny that after three, four years, you realize it's just not the case. Mm -hmm. Um, and not only is it not the case, um, you know, I, I can't speak on the highest level of politics because I just don't understand it. I watch it and it confuses me, but they are progressively right now in particular, trying to like shed the weight of their past. Um, you know, things that we take for granted, uh, movie theaters, the fact that they, the fact that they haven't had an operational movie theater in 35 years. Right. So now that's back and, you know, but what happens over there? And, and this is why people have to understand like, um, uh, with the human rights thing, it's not so simple because here's, here's what people have to understand about these countries. You know, so the argument is they say they have terrible human rights records. Yes, but they also have an extremely volatile subsect of people that are willing to just massacre for the sake of a belief. Well, we, uh, we have that too to a degree, yeah. but over there, it's, it's, well, it's, it's like when, when we went in and we, we thought that the, that we had to go in and remove Saddam Hussein from power, right? That was a big piece. The thing that we didn't realize is sometimes you need somebody who's a badder dude than all the other bad dudes to keep all the bad dudes in. And like, you know, when like the Sunnis and the Kurds would go crazy, he would go up there and like mustard gas and kill like a hundred thousand of them and like quiet those people down. And like, that's how he like, like you have to be a tyrant to rule in that part of the world. And I mean like the iron fist and like some of the stories coming out of the things that he did. Uh, you know, people are like, oh, it's so terrible. And it's like, maybe it takes that level of person. I mean, uh, like that part of the world. And I mean, you know, this part of the world has been at war through our entire recorded history. I mean, you can go back and look at like the Crusades and this. I mean, and it's like, uh, like there's probably been, uh, I mean, what, like six months of peace in the last 3000 years there? Dude, uh, since I talked to you guys last, I have gotten to the point where not only did I recognize, but I could anticipate what it sounded like when Patriots were taking down Scuds over Riyadh this year. So I have a cell phone footage on the second attack that was above my residence that I was able to identify the explosion, get out in time, and actually film the Patriot detonate. 
Like that's, that's what they're still dealing with. So everybody thinks that they're still dealing with uh, musket loaders and, and tribal uh, Bedouins fighting on camels in the desert. And it's not the case. No, you know, these, uh, these well-funded. Well-funded. The Houthi rebels that are attacking from Yemen are shooting missiles the size of a bus. Holy shit. That, that's happening continuously to that country. Now, how are those missiles getting into a country like Yemen that's been devastated? That you know, those are the questions no one wants to ask. Well, we know exactly and how we, they're getting there, and yeah. we know. And and here's the deal: none of them are producing these missiles. No, they don't have the technology. Yeah, they don't have the tech. So then you 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 know, and it's very specific to see the missiles. They know exactly where those missiles are coming from. They know who's making yeah. them, who's funding them, and how they're getting there. And like you know, it's it, it's all the shadow game stuff where you have. Uh, you know, various players involved in this thing that are trying to destabilize this. I mean, it's uh, the the irony is I just saw this whole thing about how, um, you know, Russia was able to put this systematic uh, plan in place to destabilize the United States through influencing the media in our elections. And, right. uh, and, you know, how terrible this is. And I'm like, you know, the U.S. has been doing this for the last 40, 50 years in developing countries around the world. 100 like, percent. This or has been our that- game plan. Like we like we've done this over and over again. Yeah, and the Russians were using our media sources during the Second World War to prevent us from joining in. Yeah, that's I mean, all documented because they didn't want us coming over because they knew the consequence. They wanted to, in their mind, win that war and get all the land. Sure. And so stuff like this happens. Like, so I'm I'm sort of I never used to believe this, but people would be like, you know, why are you so uh, lenient towards? Uh, capital beheadings in Saudi Arabia. Why doesn't it bother you? And my honest answer after five years is it doesn't bother me because I'm going to guess that 90% of the time they fucking deserved it. And and that's a harsh, harsh reality. I remember being woken up a year ago to the sound of AK fire not far from my house. And it's a very distinct sound. Now, it's kind of a funny story because I remember like sitting up and an AK has a large caliber burst, right? So it's like I could hear it hitting like seven, six, two by 39. That's right. So it's it's sort of that pop, 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 pop. And I sat up and I'm like, Oh, okay. I know that sound, you know? And I'm like, uh, huh, no alarms are going off. All right. I'm good. And I just went back to sleep. Right. Because that's the world you get used to. And what it actually was is in a neighborhood of Northwestern Riyadh, which would be equivalent to sort of like a Beverly Hills area, very wealthy, some insurgents were hiding in this wealthy area making bomb vests, right? And what had happened is the police had found out, because they have a really good uh, FBI equivalent there um, under the Minister of Interior, former and present, and they came in to assault the house because they knew these guys were there, and one young... Uh, Saudi police officer actually engaged two terrorists that had AK-47s and bomb vests. He engaged them with his handgun and actually won in close quarter combat, survived. He took one. He took one. Like, I'm not going to say it was, you know, movie star stuff, but uh, he survived and stopped the insurgency. And that's the type of stuff that they're dealing with over there constantly, constantly. Yeah. So in terms of geopolitics, that's been my life in the last year. It's been a little more uh, stress filled, but at the same time, 
That's kind of fucking interesting. So does it, it change your perspective coming back to the Western world? One, or, perfect. Well, perfect. I mean, or do you like look through two different lenses? Like, no, okay, man. dude, I think when you come back, it gives you such an appreciation. And yeah. then there's also this weird thing where you hear people like uh, the thing that I love here in the United States is uh, people bitching about like, uh, you know, these slow you, internet. Oh, or no, <laughs> no. Just being like, oh, you know, it's so like I, it just. Like here in Austin, there's always some big social, you know, this and this and I and like all like the the only way to preface it, like you realize they still chop people's heads off in Saudi Arabia who fucking right. make bad crimes, you right. know. And like I, I think it was uh, um, where actually we posted uh, that video on Power Athlete where the guys in Huntington where that chick was drunk and she like goes to the police officer and he yeah. basically like open field tackles or slams to the ground and like detains her and people are like, is this how you treat your women? I'm like, right. Uh, I, we worked with a, with a, a fairly um, clandestine group who told me the story of walking into a little village in Afghanistan. And as they were walking by the soccer field, there was like dozens of like bloody, they didn't, they thought they were bloody rocks. And what had happened is they'd buried all the women up to their necks at the, yep. in the soccer field and then just stoned them until they were fucking dead. And he's like, we saw all those heads and we walked in and we realized that like, like this is how they deal with, mm -hmm. you know, their problems. Like this is still their reality. And it's like, we try to constantly put our perception and our lens of what we think is right on uh, society or, and people that have no bearing for what, for, you know, for what we know. So like, how yeah. am I to, to say, Hey, you know, this is my perception and this is what's right for you when I don't know you're like, that's the part that just it's slippery know, though, man, that's slippery. You guys are exactly right. And the, and the two things that I started to, to feel immediately uh, when I started working in some of these other countries that weren't quite as um, progressive socially as ours is. Uh, one thing in particular that I noticed is for the faults that Saudi is working through right now, you know, people have to realize that the current edition of that country is less than 100 years old, right? So the founder of Saudi Arabia is the great grandfather of my client. I mean, that's not that many people removed, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. and, and that was a collective tribalism fighting to establish that type of rule. So, you know, we can get into the geopolitical side of oil and how that revolutionized the country and sped it up, but people have to realize the country is younger than we've had cars in our country. Right. So you, when you start to look at it that way, you realize, OK, there's some things that are, are we're watching on social media that the rest of us got to go through during the time of the printing press. But with that being said, the one thing that I do think is a tough issue that they're in is we need Saudi Arabia and the UAE in particular and uh, and Israel and Jordan to be extremely stable. Because by those countries and getting along, you know, and, and Omen, you can throw on there as well, but we need them to be extremely stable because there's so many regions that are unstable there that are violently unstable. So if we're willing to give, say, Saudi a little leniency here or there, right or wrong, you know what, if they're going to stabilize a region that could be a powder keg, you know, what? I'll take it because the people there for the most part are living really good lives right now. Um, there's issues uh, that they're getting on with, but for the most part, yeah, they're fine. People are going to fucking Smashburger in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia. I've been to yeah. it myself. There's BW3s, right? So life isn't is as bad there as people think. The other thing that I had a more difficult time with, um, probably within year two of coming back and forth, is I just couldn't wrap my head around anymore 
what I would refer to as the Starbucks warrior. And what it was is somebody that maybe doesn't have a, a stamp in their passport. I'm not even talking to Canada. I mean, someone that just... Well, first of all, nobody travels to Canada. No, no, no. Why? For good. Uh, because oh, they have DUIs. Some, uh, French, uh, French fries and mayonnaise? No, because they have DUIs and they can't get in. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's a yeah, that's, large that's population of people. That's a true story. <laughs> DUIs is a fucking travel uh, fupa. But it's uh, when you get back, and, and Canadians, for, for me initially, it was actually Canadians that were a real struggle for this, is I would read things on social media, these really powerful statements about the injustices of North America. Like in North America as a whole, they talk about Canada a bit, but mostly they were bashing on the U.S. And, and as someone that has had family in this country since the, in the U.S. since the 1600s, it's like I, I sort of have to step back and just catch myself before I make a comment. Uh, you know, it's, I've probably had a thousand, you know, short essays on Facebook that never got printed because halfway through I realized it's not the right way to handle that stuff. But it's like, well, but it's therapeutic to write them. I write emails and I write yeah. things all the time and just delete it because it just, doesn't help. It gets it out, you know, it gets it out of you at least. But you know, these people that are sitting in these coffee shops, drinking a $7 coffee, talking about how shitty America is mm -hmm. like those people make me fucking sick. Like I just, it's just like you stupid motherfuckers. You, you know, there's people on this planet, uh, not even in the Middle East, in, in other areas that are considered slightly more, you know, evolved in terms of their social uh, economics and, and they're fucking shitting in holes and killing the women, you know? And it's like, and you're going to sit here and talk about the fact that you're so hard done by because your fucking Uber driver didn't show up on time. Like that, I just, that part really shifted quickly. Yeah, but I mean, isn't, really that, isn't that an easy way to kind of disassociate and like, uh, yeah. you know, feel that you're doing your part without really ever getting your hands dirty? 100%. Like, I think that's what it is. It's like, you know, the the people, the the uh, the Starbucks social justice warriors, you call them, it's so easy to sit there on their high-speed internet with their computer and make these statements and feel that, you know, they're contributing to something, but like... God forbid I actually, you know, go out and actually, you know, travel and do something and, and really right. see this firsthand. Um, you know, and if they did, they would realize that, like, uh, that it's really easy to, you know, put you like, you know, s sit on your ivory tower and look down and make judgment. But, you know, to actually be there in the situation and see it and you're like, holy shit, dude. Like, uh, a lot of times people are just doing the best that they can uh, based on, you know, the information and the present status of where they are. Yeah, 100%. And yeah, so, you know, long story short, it's, uh, it, it definitely being in those parts of the world has given me a much stronger appreciation for where we get to live. Mm -hmm. There's no question about it. It's, uh, you know, everyone likes to, to make the grandiose statements that we're the best country on the planet and things of this nature. And, and what people have to understand to some degree, yeah, it's a quite an accurate statement. It's uh, we have it really good, yeah. you know, Western Europe's fucking amazing, too. Don't get me wrong. I've spent a lot of time there. I like Northern but, Europe. And uh, I mean, dude, yeah. like like when you go to and you guys have traveled as well, like Copenhagen, I mean, to uh, Denmark and Sweden and, oh, like, you know, uh, like Norway and those countries, uh, like like not only the cleanliness and, and just the entire, you know, deal. But then you come back to the United States and like everything is so accessible. Yes. Like I remember like that, that was, you know, one of the most interesting things, like there's never, you know, like coffee, this, I mean, gas, you know, wherever you go, everything is so accessible. An interesting observation when Luke and I went to the Netherlands, they were, t the trenches 
they were still there. It was yeah, pretty from cool. the German yeah, invasion, the, the German trenches invasion. they built up along the border. And the, well, but the do you people, know why? no, I don't know. Because if they, uh, I mean, for the same reason that you know Auschwitz is still there, and they've, okay. yeah, you yeah, know, uh, they want to remember their history, and which is kind of pisses me off. You know, with here where now they want to rip down statues and they want to get rid of this, and I'm like, dude, those that forget history were doomed to repeat it. Yeah. You know? But the the, yeah. the people they were speaking f- about the the Great World Wars as if it was ha- happened a month, two, three years ago. So yep. it was so ingrained in in their families and how they were raised. When you guys went to Nuremberg, did you go see the Nuremberg trials and where all that was? Drove by it, but yeah. we didn't do a tour or anything like that. Yeah, I mean that. I mean that's. But we was... went to. We did go to the Nazi parade ground, which like I'm getting goosebumps right now thinking about it. The Colosseum that Hitler was trying to build. That yeah. was like, just well, the amount of power that that dude fucking wielded and, and well, destruction. I mean, and when we went to Munich, I mean the Nazi party was, uh, you know, gave rise in the beer halls of Munich, which we have been to. And like yep. you know, you, like did you guys? Uh, I remember we went to. I can't remember who, who was with me. Was it you? Yeah. When we went mm-hmm. to that place downstairs where we had that deal. Like mm-hmm. that's where all that stuff, that history started. And I think for them, it's very real. And the idea is like they, they always feel that they're not too far away from that potentially ever right. happening again. So by keeping your history current, you know, that's why, uh, you know, everybody was, you know, so outraged with, you know, tearing down these civil, you know, the Civil War stuff. And I get it. Like, uh, you know, you probably shouldn't put these things in prominent places, mm-hmm. but I think you don't destroy them. You put them in museums yeah, or you put them in places so that you remember your history. And, and look back and you can reflect and going into the chaos or stability, whatever the metrics are, even if it's a totally subjective, you can see an upward trend to remind yes. you that like, we're OK, so it's not fucking perfect, but hang on now. You know, think about your grandparents, what they were going through in the social political environment there. And like, we're trending. Give it time. Yeah. Just like a fucking linear progression. Right. Yeah. Right. Just, yeah, it exactly. Just, it takes time. Right. And then yeah. as things become more and more advanced, just like the athlete training, you maybe plateau a little bit before yeah. you can but change. Drive my change. biggest deal and what I constantly worry about is when all of a sudden you start hearing the uh you know, these false narratives or you hear these stories getting spun and spun and I, and like, you can almost trace them back and being like, huh? Like the, you know, I mean, you know, here, here's the deal. I constantly listen whenever I talk to people and like, even yesterday when we were at, uh, uh, that deal yesterday, started rapping a little bit about politics with, um, the young guy that got up and presented the Splanton. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. So we I was were trying to figure yeah, out what the so, fuck so, we, was. so when we yeah. were at that bar, uh, I basically just talking a little bit of politics, and uh, I'm always interested to hear where people how they talk about Trump, and they say, oh, you know, he's, you know, America first, and uh, you know, really strengthening the military, and I'm like, well, how do you know it's America first? Right. What, what have you specifically seen? Is are these just the narratives that you're being told, and it's because he says it? Like, what specifically? Uh, you know, not to say it's not true or whatever it is, but you know, like actually give me something concrete more than just, you know, these big statements. And I was like, well, you know, how has it put America first? And it's right. like, well, you know, uh, look at the thing with, uh, with North Korea. And I'm like, okay. So you're saying that uh, dude got on Twitter and threatened a dude who realized that maybe the dude threatening me is crazier than me. So I probably need, I mean, like, is, is that the world we're living in where we use social media to, to threaten, you know, tens of millions of people into, into a nuclear war. But didn't your boy Dennis right. Rodman go out there and smooth it all over? He did. Yeah, yeah see? he did. The big, the worm. Well, and then uh, Trump, um, <laughs> he actually, I think he promised that they're going to build condos in North Korea. So I think it kind of works out. 
Uh, yeah, yeah. But I, like, I mean, here, here's the deal. Like uh, at, at the end of the day, like however it gets done, I just, I just think it's interesting whenever people make these type of statements like the Saudi Arabia, oh, uh, worst uh, violators of civil rights in, on the planet. And I'm always like, how? What have they done? Yeah. Like, can you give me specifics? And everybody always right. kind of clams up like, uh, well, uh, you know, you need to do some research. I'm like, well, I'm, I'm asking you. You're making these statements. Yeah. yeah like one of the, the things about that country that was a bit of an eye opener to me, you know, like, uh, you know, obviously with the Abaya, you know, everybody in the West, we see that as this incredible constraint on uh, on females, which. Yeah, you know, let's. They're wearing black pajamas in the sun. It, it, it can't be pleasant. But if you were to actually be over there and look at it culturally, the men wear ninety-five percent of the same clothing. So there, there's a bit of a misconception because we see a lot of the expats in Saudi Arabia wearing t-shirts and pants that we assume that men have all these freedoms. But a traditional Saudi male dress is the white. Uh, fabric equivalent to a black abaya. It is from Except without head cover, but they wear man well, dresses. And that's where it gets interesting because the head coverage is based on how orthodox they are in their religious beliefs. So it's not mandatory for the female to have a covered face. And that's where it gets a little bit interesting because even the men cover their head. They wear the, the yeah. camel rope and the long red and white, which is very, uh, you know, people jumps out to them from movies of the 70s with Burt Reynolds. But it's uh, when you look at the two in terms of clothing, it's identical. And it's more of a product of function than it is a fashion. When uh, right. I, we, we were in London two years ago uh, for Dave Brewer's wedding and we went to, I, I took the kids to Harrods just because I feel like you go to London, you got to see Harrods. Yep. And uh, I remember, we, yeah, we went into the, the market and they have like a, a steak thing. I think, uh, no, did I take you guys? No, I was out. I okay. Yeah. There. So they have like a pretty good little steakhouse in, you know, in their market deal. So we went in and then we were walking around and uh, you see literally it's packed with women in like the full, you know, the, the full garb yeah. head covers. And the hilarious part is if you look at the shoes and the jewelry. There you like, go. They're like, uh, like I swear this, this one gal, like super form fitting. And you can see, obviously she had, you know, like uh, in good shape and well enhanced uh, yep. rocking like a shorter one. And she had these like eight inch stiletto snakeskin gold shoes, like that you looked and went up and was like dripping in diamonds. And like, you, you know, you can see like behind it and you're like, like, <laughs> like what's going on under there. And, um, she walked out with some other, and they got into, uh, a completely chromed, uh, G 63, uh, Mercedes wagon, like a G wagon yeah. that was chromed on forties. Nice. I mean, and so the funny part is I took a picture and I went back and Googled it and it was built for like the Saudi fam or like some royalty. And it was yep. like, you know, a million and a half dollar bulletproof twin turbo thing. And I got to see it. It was epic. I have a picture. I think it's on my Instagram. And uh, but like seeing that level of like it, it, it's just it, it's a weird thing where it's like they might have their head covered and this black outfit. But like there's something else going on in this whole different culture. Largest Victoria's Secret I've ever seen in my life is in the Kingdom Mall in Riyadh. Yeah. <laughs> massive. It's like two floors. It's gigantic. Yeah, it is. It's uh, the, the world's a strange place, but I, I think it sort of segues us a little bit, too, because the other area when you get away from the geopolitics of social media and how it's affecting everything is in the last couple of years, the other place I've seen it. And, I'm, and I was going to ask you guys about this on the, when we got to talk today is how much it's affecting the strength and conditioning fucking world and the fitness world. Um, and the reason I say that is because 
when I think uh, bodybuilders without borders, man, uh, <laughs> dude, uh, the amount of uh, insane steroid abuse that's going over in the Middle East with these dudes, it, like it's the body, unbelievable. Like, I can't like the the. Uh, I forgot where it is, but I, I like I saw something. Uh, there's some like, body, it's bodybuilding team in Kuwait yeah. that these guys that they're bringing these dudes over and training in Kuwait. And uh, I am like, I thought we already saw the peak. Mm-hmm. Like you know, like all of a sudden these dudes were looking like you know the Miles Staten Bulls, and we saw, it, and yep. now all of a sudden like these like uh, Middle East bodybuilders, and there's an Instagram call. I think it's bodybuilder bodybuilders without borders or something. Yeah, and. Uh, Fucking, I've never seen anything like it. Next level. I've never, it's next level. I've never seen anything. And, you know, it's like when I think back, when I first started blogging, uh, while well, blogs didn't exist, I don't, does anyone know what that word even means? Blog? Uh, yeah, not off the top of my head, though. I kn- Go. Yeah, go, right? It's a fucked up word. So anyway, I wish people would stop using it. But web, when I started... Weblog. It's a web... I don't really like the word blog. Blog. I don't either. Let's it's weird, right? a new word. Uh I like articles. I like want to be a writer. I like articles. Yeah. And that's like when I started writing articles on the social internet medium, uh, fucking in 2003, it was all based on training. And it's funny because when I go back to 03 and I think about writing when I was training full time, the one thing that I was always having to defend or always having to write about was the opposition to basically enhanced athletes regardless of sport, didn't matter if it was bodybuilding or track and field, which I was in or whatever. But every time I wrote an article about strength and conditioning, I felt like I was always referencing the difference between athletes that were doing it clean and athletes that were doing it enhanced. And, and why? Because everybody would want to argue the topic. The reason is, and I've always felt like this, is that when you get into these arenas, the way that people qualify or disqualify and I think make themselves feel better is by just casting it and being like, well, all those guys are on drugs. If I was on those drugs, then I could do this too. And I remember a guy saying that to me once, and I actually said to him, I was like, here's the deal, man. Um, I'll give you the money. Go buy every drug you can take. And take them all. And I guarantee you won't even get a college scholarship, let alone even get a chance to play. And the guy was like, that's impossible. And I'm like, I'm telling you, I never met anybody. I believe me, I never met a, or let's see, I never saw a drug that made a bad player a good player. I just saw drugs basically make a bad player a bigger bad player. And they made a good player just a bigger, stronger, faster, good player. player. And I said, at the end of the day, there is no drug for courage. There is no drug for, you know, neurological enhancement, learning, whatever. I'm like, it's you guys, all you see is the physical expression. What you can't understand is the mental, emotional connection, all the wiring, all that other good stuff. I'm like, there's there's really no performance enhancing for that. And I'm like, at the end of the day, like it... It's, uh, but I, I just always remember getting into these conversations and about the exact same time and being like, dude, uh, it's a land of genetic freaks. And the problem is, is that your brain, the, your capacity can't reach that part because it's just some genetic fucking anomalies. But in a sport like football that, that has more merit than, let's say, throwing, where it's individual, closed loop, it is rehearsable sport. So now all of a sudden, uh, a performance enhancing drug that can get, give you the edge of recovery or improved performance well, does have a significant... First of all, uh, I would say, if anything, um, I was around a lot of really strong guys and that played at a high level and did some interesting things. Mm-hmm. The two single most impressive training stories I've ever fucking heard come from Derek Woodsky and also from Adam. Um, 
Nelson. Uh, Adam Nelson. Uh, when Woodski talking about the first time he lifted weights, he squatted like 415. And then the other... 420. 420. 420. I'm sorry. <laughs> sorry. 420. And he was only seven years yeah, old, and, and I it think was uh, crazy. he went in cold. And then the other one was when uh, Adam Nelson, like, what did he squat? It was like 585 for like 30 reps. Two on, more! <laughs> yeah, like, I, I, I can't right. remember exactly what the number was, but like, I remember, uh, like, just being like, uh, I want to see a video. Like, I, I know he's yeah. not the guy to lie, but wasn't it 585 for like 20 or 30 reps? Something or, like that. I, I think, uh, well, you know, it's got to be because I had a teammate that wasn't even of the shot put caliber of an Adam Nelson. He was good. You know, he's a 60 put, 60 foot shot putter, but he squatted 600 for 10. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. No, I, I, it, dude, I, I, and it's crazy. Right. And when I one think of my about training it, partners uh, in high school squatted, I watched him squat 500 for 10 and he wasn't even 18 years yep. old. I got a video. I asked to send it to you. There's a kid in Indianapolis, Indiana. He's a running back, should be a senior this year. When he was 15 turning 16, uh, his coach sent a video. He's wearing just a belt, and I believe he squats 585 for a single. He's 15 years old. Jeez. I mean, but uh, so what's going on? So Adam Nelson, like, like, like tells that story and having squatted that weight and having squatted it for reps, but not nearly what he did. I was like, Holy shit, like having, uh, but it, it's, it's impactful because I've done it, but for somebody who doesn't really lift weights or train, like what's the difference between 400, 500, right. 600, 700? Right, right. They're, and, they're tripping at 275. And don't realize that like, you know, when, when you know, like, and we, we run this all the time. Oh, the, you know, that program was pretty good. Uh, I put 50 pounds on my squad in like, you know, 10 right. weeks. Yeah. And then they're like, you know, but I, I, I feel like it was okay. Like I didn't really get as good at games. And I'm like, I would fucking kill somebody to be able to put 20 pounds, 15 pounds on a squat in a year. And you just put 50 or 60 pounds over the course of two months. Like, unbelievable. And uh, uh, like, so hearing like your story and his story uh, to this day is like some of the most impressive shit I've ever heard. So like, yeah, I appreciate it. And it's funny because, you know, some of mine happened before I knew why I was doing it. You know, that genetic fact actor, of course. And, and then when I learned how to train, some of those numbers got a little silly, um, as I got into my late twenties, but you know, it's really interesting because, you know, I remember a decade ago defending everything I wrote as an anti-steroid defense, right? Everything I wrote because some fucking troll back then didn't believe it because it made it inconceivable for them to be successful. But now we're having to argue from a social media standpoint, from like two standpoints, one, because peptides anabolics have become so accessible for the fitness bodybuilding side of things where cosmetically you can adjust how you look without perhaps ever having to have a physical marker of your ability, right? So someone can get really, really lean, really, really jacked um, if they're coherent to diet and take some gear and put them in a pretty good light. They become an expert on social media. Um, and in a very short order and people will be like, Oh yeah, that guy figured it out. That's, that's the guy we need to listen to fuck everybody else. But the other problem that I'm also seeing, and this one is a little bit more confusing for people is it actually goes back to that decade old statement is social media and maybe movements like CrossFit, but I think even more so just social media as a whole has made it apparent to people that normally wouldn't have gotten to see how many other people are lifting weights and doing active stuff 
to the point where everyone's like, I don't understand how females today are so strong. Like why all of a sudden in the last six years, seven years are all these women on social media lifting these huge loads. And I was talking to Robin Lyons about this and, and she's a coach here in the U S coach for OPEC. She was a, an Olympic qualifier herself in track and field. And we were having this discussion cause she trained some of the strongest female CrossFitters in the world. And she goes, you know, what's funny. She goes, in 2000, 2001, uh, when she qualified for the Olympics in 2000, she goes, we had girls that were benching 315. We had girls that were squatting. We had a girl squat 405 for five. Um, she wasn't lean or ripped or anything like that, but she squatted 405 for five. We had a, a couple other girls clean in the 260, 265 range in the power clean. The problem was, is they were anomalies because there were so few of them into the iron world. And what I think social media has done is put such a big spotlight on so many people and got so many people into weightlifting uh, because it's cool. Yeah, I mean, it's an easy way to get credibility in a world where maybe, uh, you know, fame is what they seek in some regard that everyone's like, wow, everyone's getting, you know, our genetics are advancing, something's changing, we're evolving, all this shit. And it's like, no, it's just an, a larger percentage of people are doing the thing that was obscure and cult-like 15 mm -hmm. years ago. Well, and not dude, only that, it's visible via hashtag. No, and, and, the, uh, and, and I'm going to take it a step further. It's a four-minute mile. Do you remember that the four-minute mile yes. was uh, nobody would ever break it, and if they broke it, they were going to die immediately. Then all of a sudden, the dude goes out and smashes the four-minute mile, and then within two months, like 25 people did it. So I think yep. it just takes somebody to see somebody else do it. Like, I, I always go back to this idea. Like, I remember lifting weights and feeling like I was pretty strong and then showing up and seeing really strong people and realizing, like, I need to be way stronger. Mm -hmm. And yep. then all of a sudden, uh, you know, strength. And I've always said, man, uh, um, strength is built. I mean, really, strength is osmo uh, through osmosis. Just being around stronger people forces you into this. And it's, it's adaptation at a fan, uh, faster deal. Like, um you know, playing college football, the speed of college football is, you know, one speed. And then all of a sudden you show up at the NFL and it's literally twice as fast. And right. you either uh, start moving that fast or you go home. And most people just end up moving that fast. And they're always like, well, how did you, um, you know, how did you uh, survive? Yeah, well, yeah. Like, how did you learn to move faster? And I'm like, because if I didn't, I'd go home and I wanted to stay yep. there. So you just yep. force yourself to move faster. And then I go back and I watch college football and um, had the opportunity to go watch you guys uh, from UT practice. And uh, their, their offensive line coach like, what do you think? I'm like, I just can't believe how slow people are moving. And he's like, really? I'm like, it just looks like everybody's in slow motion. And he's like, well, the NFL is a faster game. And it was like, yeah, 100% it's are a faster you game. Are you sure you're just not used to watching me and Tex play spike ball? Ah, probably. Ooh, man, Woodski, it's like fucking lightning bolts out there. <laughs> not fucking cement feet over here. I'm talking about, you know, I'll tell you, statue. my little boy uh, showed up today and he was pretty excited to play spike ball. I know, we shut him down. We're oh, like, yeah. ah, Cashy, we're tired. So, uh, <laughs> so on, we, we trained at seven on Fridays. And so he gets up and uh, he said, take me, take me. So we get up and we, you know, we come up to the gym. And, dude, he's so excited to show up there, man. Like, he rode his bike up, or he's really at his push bike, and running there, and he was like, spike ball, spike ball. And then, uh, sure mm -hmm. enough, we didn't play spike ball. But we got some football catches. Yeah, man. yeah, he's getting better. So, yeah, it, but, you know, he's just around it. So, I mean, just think, think about that. Like, if, you know, if you grew up around it, seeing it, instead of just showing up to some mm -hmm. county fair and, you know, hey, yep. throw this weight on. But, like, I think for, like, for my son, like, he gets to show up and see a gym and people train and the whole deal. And so it'll just be second nature instead of, like, some obscure thing that we used to do in George Zangus's garage and people thought we were fucking weirdos.
100%. And that's really what I think it's become. It's not so much that people have found a way to circumvent the system. And, you know, and of course, there was a time a couple of years ago where I, I sort of had to ask those questions myself. But I've realized now in the last couple of years, and it's something that I think people need to become aware of, is people haven't found special drugs. Like, peptides are not the difference. Now, we can make the argument that with some of these elite level IFBB pros that are literally growing out of their bodies, there are some things that are happening there that they haven't quite figured out, I think, fully the long-term effect of that. Cause even guys like Dorian Yates and whatever are talking in regards to, did you like, see listen, his thing in, uh, uh, in, you know, at the London deal, London and, real. Yeah. yeah. And it, like, cause even he can't quite figure out what they're doing. Like, well, they asked him and he's like, uh, I know what we did. Yeah. And, uh, uh, like, I mean, but I remember seeing Dorian Yates, uh, like pictures and there was something different about him. The insulin and, transformation. Yeah, I mean, it, well, yeah, yeah, 100%. It, it added something, and then they were, you know, yep. they were throwing in the T3 to, you know, keep them lean. And But I'll, I'll just tell you this. Like, I thought it was the training, but his training was it was total snowball. I remember, uh, you know, one set to failure. Little do yep. you know he had about 25 warm-ups building exactly. up to his one top set and, you know, his idea of, like, you know, whatever the rep that leads me to failure. Uh, you know, but then it's, of course, they're like, oh, one set to failure, Mike Metzer. And I'm like, dude, uh, if no. you go back and you look at it. Yeah, I'll tell you a crazy story. So this goes back about seven years ago and I was working for my previous employer and uh, I arrive in Amstead, Sweden and I, I'm getting ready to check into my room. I'm like, holy fuck, this is, this is like a suite. There's like a, two bedrooms in here. thought it was going to be a, a typical shit room that they usually splurged for. So I get in there and I'm like, huh, this is weird. So I call up my boss and I'm like, uh, I'm like, hey, I think they put me in your room. And he's like, no, no, you got a roommate. And I'm like, no oh, shit. I'm like, who could it be? So, so the fucking guy walks through the door, it's Milos Arcev, yeah. right? So Milos Arcev at the time is like hiding from the police in the United States. Well, he True owned fucking, a gym in Orange County. Fuck and, yeah. And, uh, then he, and then he ditched it and ran to Europe, right? Yeah. But I, I think somebody died or some like chick he was coaching died yeah, or something. No, weird they, they covered it up. You know what had happened there is he was in a domestic abuse situation and he, and he uh, jumped country. Ah, uh, okay. Right. So I watched and I don't know this yet, of course, right? I'm fucking letting the cat out of the bag right now. So he's a fucking wife beater. Fuck that guy. So anyway, he, uh, he comes walking into the room and I'm like, holy shit, that's Milo Sarsef. And I'm like, oh, this is going to be fucking interesting. Right. Cause I remember him from the magazines sure. when I was a kid. Now he's standing in my room in Sweden and it's total like Forrest Gump moment. So, you know, we're going to be together for about 14 days after about day three, I realized we probably weren't going to click. You know, like it just, we weren't, we weren't on the same so page. So you're saying he wasn't a real cerebral dude, huh? Yeah. Me and Milos weren't on the same page. So, uh, so I was like, okay, if I don't have to like this dude, I'm going to ask him a lot of fucking questions. Right. Because I'm like, this is at the end of the day, Milos Arcev. And now I'd heard rumors that Milos was through Dan Duchesne, the man who introduced insulin to IFBB bodybuilding. I'd heard this. And sure enough, that's he loves it. That's his claim to fame, and he talks about it all the time. Dude, the uh, the bodybuilder dudes I used to train with back in Orange County used to train with Milos and train at his gym like on Saturdays, and uh, we're always very forthright that he was, you know, like like the. Uh, the um, uh, what was it? The insulin with the kitchen sink uh, that they would yes. consume uh, the shake they called the kitchen sink, which was ever like, yeah. So those dudes Everything. would tell Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Okay. And they were doing. And so, you know, over the course of the next few days, I just, you know, I just 
anything that he would openly discuss, I was just like making a note of. And, and that was the big revolution. He talked about all the guys he introduced the insulin to, all the IFBB pros that you could see go from like stage weight of 250 to 300, one in particular from Texas and, and, and a couple different guys where you're just like, holy fuck, right? And the insulin was, was the big change. But he told me of a case where one guy, one guy in particular was an up and coming bodybuilder and the guy had never used any anabolics whatsoever. And the first thing he ever used was insulin before he ever touched steroids. And the reason being is because he could get it from a buddy of his that was a diabetic, right? And I was just like, I was sitting there just like blown away by the, by the ridiculousness of what I was hearing. This guy in the first 24 months of his bodybuilding career using insulin gained 57 pounds, stepped on stage, two and a half years into lifting weights and had won a national qualifier off insulin. And so what that made me sort of step back and think about was, okay, if bodybuilders can put on this much lean muscle mass with insulin and get away with it, cause it's not testable, not even thinking about testosterone or things that are going to throw a flag for uh, PEDs and Olympic sports. That was the bit of a wake up call for me where I stopped and, you know, and thought, okay, were braver power athletes than myself? Were they using insulin? Did they know this already? And how many bigger level power athletes just started experimenting with insulin to get around drug testing? And how many out there, and especially now today with what we see with Bodybuilders Without Borders in Kuwait and some of these other countries, like the guy, I think he's from Denmark, um, they're so massive and they've put on so much muscle mass that you're like, okay, okay, this, this is the part of it that is being so poorly misrepresented due to social media, because these guys literally are a ticking, as the old saying goes, a ticking time bomb in terms of health and death. Well, you I know? mean, the insulin stuff has always been super scary. I mean, the idea of like, shit uh, out of me. yeah, I mean, dude, I, I remember some of the body, those bodybuilder dudes I trained with, uh, used to use that. And I remember seeing the guy, you know, consume his, uh, fucking, 3000 calorie shake with all this fucking, uh, you know, it was like a Swedish waxy maze and this thing they called the kitchen sink. And I watched the dude literally like it looked like a faucet and he started sweating so bad and he fucking almost died into it or went into this weird diabetic fucking almost passed out and coma. They're giving him fucking candy bars and we're at the gym and I'm like, Oh God, like, uh, like yeah. the, at the end of the day, uh, I want to train and be strong and this, and I'm like, but, um, uh, who's fucking going to keel over and dive uh, for some fucking local contest? Like, this is crazy right. to me. Yeah. And, that, and that's what I fear in our modern world of social media is perpetuated is just this massive at all costs, be the person that is most remembered right now regardless of outcome well, but uh, but we're the same age and you remember all the bodybuilders that have fucking died from the greg kovacs remember when that yeah, dude yeah. stepped on and he was a canadian but that guy yeah. was like remember he was going to revolutionize bodybuilding 400 was, pounds yeah 400 yeah. pound bodybuilder going to step on and then the story is the dude was so massive that uh he had to have his girl go with him to wipe him because he couldn't fucking he was so big he couldn't fucking wipe his own ass and like, true story. yeah, true story. And like the story, like there's some crazy stories. The dude, I just had like a massive fucking coronary, uh, yeah. you know, and you go through all of these dudes like a Craig Titus and, uh, yep. uh, who was the, uh, the Russian or the, the German dude who had the paper skin, uh, Andre Munzer, Andre Munzer, all of these dudes yeah. fucking died. And, uh, for what? 
for what? Yeah, exactly. Because it, there certainly was no glory that followed. Well, you know what? A there lot was of, no social media, so these dudes had to get in magazines. Magazines, it's exactly, it. and they're getting paid cents on the dollar. And and you know what's funny about it, and the thing that I wish people would understand is, with the risk that they're taking, they do think that there's going to be this like. 300-esque glory into immortality, right? That they will, you know, charge the hill so valiantly that when they get to the top, they'll yell and be heard for centuries. If people only understood that the moment that these fuckers kick off from these radical choices they make, all 50 guys standing behind them secretly applaud. Or step over their body. And I mean. step over their body, and their name does not go down in infamy. It just does not. And and that is, I think, the biggest difference between what we're seeing now in people that are trying to manifest greatness through a very single, singular dimension, meaning which if your entire manifestation of awesomeness is purely the way you look for a brief moment in time, it will only last for a brief moment of time. Well, and, you know? and let's also put it like it is. It's, it's a beauty pageant. So you're going to step pageant. up and, uh, you know, get painted there. You got your Speedo. You get up and you, and you throw some poses. I mean, dude, they're, uh, the level of athleticism. And t- I mean, yeah, like I, I'll never say that those guys haven't committed hard work, dedication, regimen to be able to get yep. yourself into that shape. I'm not saying that. But there really isn't any athletic uh, uh, like, like there is no clear winner. It's, uh, it's, uh, I guess you could say it's subjective. The dude right. judging you makes a decision on whether he thinks you look better in a speedo than the other dude next to you. 100%. Which, which at and, the end of the day, if you're a thrower, you either throw it farther than right. the other guy. But like, what if yeah. like there were three judges you throw it and they're like, ah, Derek just looked better. So he's going to get the goal. Right. Absolutely. Great. Line. Yeah, like, Reminds oh me God. of Swayze and Roadhouse, to yeah. be honest with you. And, and, you know, and some guy <laughs> out throws you by like 12 inches and they were like, ah, his extension wasn't as good. His outfit wasn't good. He really right. wasn't tanned up. So uh, Derek gets a goal. I mean, dude, it doesn't work like that in the real fucking world unless no. it's on social media. Exactly. And you can even transcend the physique world into other sports where, you know, social media has created a, a forum where people can just deadlift every, you know, three days and post it and get 100,000 followers if they have the right strength levels and energy about their imagery. But again, you know, at what point do they have to step back and go, okay, where is this leading me? And where do I go from here in which I'm actually going to make an impact to the world, impact to the people around me? Am I transcending this one part of myself am i am i becoming a coach am i bringing up other people is my message or my experiences as a strength athlete or an athlete or a physique competitor um is what i'm doing with my my time here is it going to transcend me through the people in which i impart that into because I think a lot of these people don't realize that the only legacy that you can leave is those in which they learn from you. I mean, even if you don't have children, legacy is still going to be something that you give to somebody else that transcends your time over. But all this over. shit, well, I all do. this shit happens absent of social media as well, man. Like I, mm-hmm. I get it, but I'm not convinced. Well, think, I think, think that about- growth process happens regardless well, someone's going to mm-hmm. find themselves in a think vortex about Bill Kazmaier, right i was thinking about this and uh we got a chance to I, i'd never met kaz he's a strange cat but i get it think about kaz uh pre like 
that dude was a like people will speak you know sing fucking heroic tales of that dude right there was no social media i remember as a kid watching world's strongest man in this and i always think like would bill kazmaier be bigger or smaller or better if you were to fast forward him in today's deal and put him into a social media kind of situation was he uh you know because he was so like you know world's strongest man the peak i mean probably one of the i i would say probably would you say that one of the strongest humans to ever walk the planet if not the strongest he's got to be right and and i think luke's making a really good point like when we look at pre-social media era there were people that were still doing the same one-dimensional bullshit that people are doing on social media that is without a doubt a good example and john you'll remember him as brian oldfield yeah right one of the greatest shot putters in history but he was so one-dimensional I mean, you're talking about a guy that injected adrenaline before he competed one time, right? He was so one-dimensional that he could never transcend the one thing that he tried to master, and he never gave back to the sport. Mm -hmm. Like, he never – now, some people might hear this and want to burn my house down, but I've worked with the guy post-athletic career. He was not a good influence to the young. He was not a good influence to generations that were coming behind him. Um, The problem is – with today's mediums, the same person that maybe isn't the greatest uh, ambassador to the sport may get the greatest spotlight to spread their message because mm-hmm. of other aspects of their personality. Yeah, because they were, yeah, they were the adrenaline injecting madman. And everybody's like, that's the fucking guy I want to follow because he's a madman. That's fucking awesome. Meanwhile, you have another person who could be equally as good, a competitor of his, that a little more of a silent warrior, but can sit down and be like, okay, when I'm not working with uh, my sport individually, I'm more like a power athlete organization and we are developing coaches and athletes every fucking day. And let's face it, there's people all over the world that haven't fully caught on to what power athlete is, mm-hmm. but they fucking should. Right. And, and that's the part of it that to me is really, really important that people understand. It's like, OK, if you're going to invest all of this energy in mastery and invest nothing in legacy through the education of other athletes or the passing of the passion or the uh, the expression of what it was that you went through to get to where you're going, then all the accolades that you're seeking for athletic achievement, I hate to break it to you, they're not going to be remembered. Mm-hmm. You remember in, uh, I think it was, um, uh, what was the Brad Pitt movie where he was uh, Achilles? Was that Troy? Troy. Mm-hmm. Troy. You remember yeah. when he goes out there and they go, go get Achilles, and the little kid goes, oh, I saw the you know the big guy, and I'm, very, I'm super nervous. I would be nervous. And he like as he hand, takes his sword, he's like, that's why nobody will ever remember your name, and he rides off. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I always, like, I remember seeing that part, and you think about it. I mean, there's a reason that uh, we know the story of Thermopylae. There's a reason that we know the, these heroic epics and, you know, here and they, they, they've sang tales and songs about this for history is because people went out and they accomplished something. There's nothing yep. in there being like, oh, there's guys Achilles who was super jacked, but he never did anything. Like the reason that he was remembered was that he rode into battle. So I think for a lot of times with these guys, it's like, I mean, uh, Dorian Yates, for me, uh, just because of that age, uh, seeing him and like seeing him being really that first what I call mass monster, where it, he just like so grainy and all those black and white photos. I remember in Flex magazine. So for me, like super impactful. But then to see him now, where he's like, uh, you know, 
it was the end to justify the means. This is what I did, and now I'm not going to let this, you know, define me. I'm going to go in a different direction. I'm, you know, I'm not going to continue to be the Lee Labrado where I'm chasing this. Right. And uh, it's just super, I mean, just really interesting to see how people kind of navigate this thing. But we're in this um, this situation where, you know, uh, social media, too, has become a lot like Hollywood, where you really mm-hmm. don't know what's real and what's not. Uh, you know, and like, no, I, 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 like I, I was thinking this the other day, um, these, uh, uh, you know, actors were coming out and they were talking about, you know, politics and Trump and this whole thing. And, uh, somebody made a point that like, you know, I don't know why actors don't have more influence on people. And I'm like, well, you get paid to lie for a living. Yeah. Like, uh, you know, your whole job is based on playing a character. So then all of a sudden you get up and you're honest and I just don't know if people necessarily jive. Like I'm not taking political advice from, you know, from actors. It's just not going to happen or I'm not, you know, I, I respect that they have their point of view, but I just don't like the condescending way that they push it. Uh, you know, and now we're in a situation with social media where you're like, are they fake weights? I mean, who do we know? Is it the exact pose? How many pays? So now you have a professional taking these pictures and it's looking like not authentic. And I constantly am looking at it and being like, how produced is all this information? How screen driven, like how much of it's organic? And are we really seeing what we're seeing or are we just seeing what somebody wants to fucking force us to see? But isn't that part of the learning curve? Like there's going to be young enthusiasts, maybe aspiring athletes and coaches who seek, I don't know, information from social media and they find some fucking donkey who is packaged up nice and they try it and next thing they know it stinks like shit. Well, yeah, but then do they become smarter and smarter as they go? Do they, do, do they develop their own guide on how to navigate social media and find guys like a Woodski and our fucking crew of people who have the best intentions and the right information colliding and pushing it straight down your throat so that you can become a better version of yourself. I think we're going to run into a time where all of a sudden the, the people that they are going to sing these heroic tepic, uh, tales that are going to come out and smash things are going to be just some kid in a garage who had a book who didn't know that there was anything else outside of there yeah. and who comes out and is like just going to you know smash things and being like, I've been training in the garage. I didn't even realize that any of this stuff was out there. I'm just trying to be right. the best version. And all of a sudden yeah. that type of stuff where you know, you're going to have to come, uh, you know, whether it be in the Olympics or, you know, football throwing, like whatever the arena is that we choose, I think we're going to go back to this thing where it's, it's less influence. Um, I, I just do. I, I, I really pray for it because uh, I don't like, I mean, and like, like we talked about the four-minute mile, seeing somebody to do it, but I don't always know it's a benefit to see everybody else doing what you're doing. Like I was thinking about for you when, we, yes. when, when you gave yeah, up yeah. and you gave that talk about, you know, fantasy, and here you grow up in this little town of like four people, you know, and you're related to three of them. You know, and, uh, yep. you know, you had this idea of I want to do something that goes outside, but there was really no frame of reference for you. So you like and you use the term fantasy, but I don't know if it's fantasy as much as it's like imagination and like role playing and choose your own adventure. Yep. And this like idea 100%. of I'm going to get out there. If you had access to social media and you saw what all these other people doing, doesn't that stop part of your development, then all of a sudden, then you don't have to create the choose your own adventure social because here it is. Here's somebody from Canada who does this and I'm going to do it. Now I can do it opposed from like, uh, you know, does does that make sense? I I think there's, yeah, I do. I I think I see what you're saying there. And I I think there is a little bit of plug and play with social media where people can uh, virtually live through somebody else's day-to-day awesomeness. Um, and I do see that, you know, I think it's always existed a little bit. I mean, that's why television has always captivated millions because we could turn on the TV on Monday night and be Magnum PI for 30 minutes. You know, um, I, I do think there are people that will always 
gravitate towards that. I think social media has probably pulled in a few more. I think social media on the other side of it has also opened the doors. Like I said, female athletes aren't doing things that they couldn't do 20 years ago. It's just allowed them to see that there's this army of female athletes that they can gravitate to. And there's no longer a bullshit stigma about having a 500 pound squat or deadlift, um, you know, compared to your male counterparts. The other thing that I think is quite fascinating about it, if it's used correctly, and I, and I don't know what right or wrong is anymore. Um, but you know, everything is so prim and polished that, it would be nice. And I don't even know how to do it because the moment that you put it out into the universe, somebody will be like, that's a really good fucking idea. I could make dirt look shiny every time. And meaning which that someone did start pushing towards a reality based perception of training, someone that just really shows the, the dirt and blood of what it takes to go from zero to success. But the problem is, is they get really good at shining up the dirt. And, and so you, you still don't get that true feel like for all of us that have, have been in this a long time, you know, people, people forget that I can, you know, there's days where you're sitting in a gym by yourself who the fuck knows why, you know, you go into workout, then you're sitting on a bench, then you're thinking about childhood, then you're thinking about your girlfriend, then you're thinking about your boyfriend, you're thinking about all this shit. And you're like, wow, I've been sitting on this bench for 33 minutes. Well, that's Tuesday's workout. And that's just, you know, because uh, I don't even think I'm ready to squat anymore. I'm gonna have to warm up again, because I, I took way too again. long in my fucking set, set. set too long. And you realize that it's not because you did anything wrong. It's not because you don't have the grind or you're not a fucking beast in the weight room or any of that social media jargon. It's because you know, that you're going to be in the gym 200 fucking days a year for 20 years. And some days you sit on a bench for 33 minutes and forget where you are right? Because that's how much time is put into the endeavor. And, and I think that's what's really hard to capture nowadays is the time, the amount of time it takes to really be successful. Because the moment that you try to put a, put a stop clock on what it is that we're passionate about, it can be a bit of a deterrent. Because when you start telling people on the front side of a, of a walk that it's going to take five, six, seven years, Oh, it's, it's stomach churning. But when you look at what you guys have done, what I've done with, with physical culture, and most of it was done without prying eyes, judging every aspect of it, the time goes by pretty fast because it was quite enjoyable to sit on that bench for 33 minutes and waste it that day because it was a fuck of a lot better than whatever else you were going to do that day. Well, I also remember being a young guy and sitting there and for 33 minutes listening to the old guys tell us stories. 100%. And, 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 and realizing like I'm okay to not lift weights because I just got to hear some really cool shit. And the fact that they're sharing this with me makes me feel like I'm part of something. And I remember yes. like when the old dudes would talk or they would tell us stuff, I'm just like, I was thankful that they included me enough to be like, you know, get the fuck out of here. You know, yep. like I felt like I was a part of something and I was like, uh, if we don't even lift weights, I'm just stoked that I got to hear this stuff. Yep. And the message gets transcended. Whoever that person was, you may not remember their name, but you definitely remember them. And along they live amongst the heap of iron. Right. And and, you know, it's funny when you think about some of those things. And especially when I look back on it, some of the most influential moments of my life came from, you know, being an observer 
of people that, you know, maybe they weren't even that good in the big scheme of things, but they were so much better than where I was at. And because of that, all I wanted to do was just to be, you know, the observer of what it is that they had figured out and try to see whether or not that I could be a part of it. And, and I think like with podcasts, like with what you guys are doing here with some of the stuff I've played around with, with the symposium is massive. And I think this is one aspect or aspects of our industry in particular that really have to be hung on to with, with, you know, like clenched fists, because you can put out your Instagram or even a Facebook photo or any other uh, article on social media, and you can really polish that thing. And people can love it and they should love it. And it should be like a finished work if you have any pride in yourself. But I think by having live forum, semi-live forum like a podcast, um, Facebook lives on occasion where people get to interact with you in real time. I think those that do that and do it quite honestly, I think Jeff Nichols does a lot of it if, if I use my memory correctly. Um, I think it sort of breaks down that barrier a little bit that gets formatted with the social media world and, and gets it real again a little bit and gets people like, okay, this is what they really think. This is what they sound like. This is how they, they see the world. And I think if we lose that, if it ever gets to the point where everything becomes truly virtual and everything is delayed, nothing is live access. I think a lot of what we're worried about will escalate. But I think as long as things of this nature, the symposium is huge. And I don't want to get on fucking soapbox, but you know what? I'm going to get on a bit of a soapbox because I used to work in an industry where we spoke to our athletes or our clients or our students, whatever you wanted to call them live for two, four, five, and seven days with the Poliquin uh, Institute. Now the Poliquin company as a whole is kind of dissolved. I don't really know what it's doing now. It doesn't matter. The premise was correct. And the premise was correct in the sense that we had an online education platform, which allowed people anywhere in the world to, to study and read, but they had to get together. And we went to where they were, we traveled all over the world and we would stand in front of these people and we would interact with them human to human as a coach to a student or a coach to an athlete. And that is becoming increasingly difficult to pull off because people don't want to travel. They want to do everything online. And if people would only understand how powerful the connection to the community is by having a physical interaction with the information, the people that are presenting it, as well as the other people that actually attend these similar symposium thought processes have on actually how much you retain, how quickly you develop, and how much more understanding that you get in the information in the area that you're passionate about is almost unquantifiable. And I know a lot of people probably hear me say that and be like, yeah, this power athlete has a symposium. That's why I say that. It's not fucking true. If I could go out every, you know, 14 days to a different city and do a three day symposium myself, where I just taught my theories of strength and conditioning. And I knew that the lazy fucks would get off their couch and stop waiting for the webinar version and actually come and listen. I know without being an arrogant cocksucker that I would produce more successful coaches than half, if not the majority of webinars that I watch that do not interact with people. And it's because there is a connection between humans when you're standing eye to eye and things happen without a filter that breaks down a lot of the confusion. 
And I, and I just think that I don't know how we're ever going to flip that coin back over. I remember the last lecture I gave for the Poliquin group, we had, uh, we had 34 attendees for seven days come to East Greenwich, Rhode Island. They paid $3,500 a piece to attend the course, not including expenses. And I remember offering a course three years ago for $300 and I couldn't pay people to show up mm-hmm. because they it's kept, a price point. It's a price point. Now, they, now if you had 10 grand, you would have been had hundreds of people. I don't know. I disagree, man. I'm kidding. I'm being sarcastic. But yeah. there, there's some truth to that. No, there but, is uh, a little dude. We, we did the traveling seminar, man. We've taught, uh, on, you know, all over the globe. And there was at one point where it was selling out. And then all of a sudden yep. people were like, it, my, my favorite was getting an email the day after we got back from a certain place with somebody being like, Hey, I just, you know, I see you guys are having seminars. When are you coming to this town? And yes. we're like, wow, yes. I just got back from there yesterday. I didn't even know there was a seminar in town. Mm-hmm. And you're yep. like, fuck you. Like or that my, happened so often that I was like, this is bullshit. Yeah. And I knew I was in trouble and it had only been a two year period. Uh, when I released the course date that I was offering and within a day I started to get when will the webinar be available mm-hmm. that was the very first thing I asked and I was like god damn I'm like okay who I don't know if I hope this isn't a trend and sure enough it was it's exactly what was happening and and like I get it I understand why people want convenience but again I'm not a Starbucks warrior my convenience is doing a job that involves a 10,000 mile commute right so when I think of things of that nature and when I see people that are not willing to go listen to Ed Cohen speak for 125 bucks, I know that there's a serious problem, right? And this could be now tangentially where social media does affect the, the whole organism of learning in this industry is that you can, you can get the information. You can, right? Yeah. But going into the one-on-one, you know, we, ha- we actually recorded a podcast earlier today. We were totally different subject, but it's like, it's not hitting a bullseye, but it's getting you a lot closer. You know right. what I mean? And if someone truly wants to be the, the best or learn the, get the most out of the experience or the, the mentor or the coach or the expert, there is no fucking, there's no replacement for sitting down and talking. Like I, I just, Zero. even this, this podcast is and what we've done here for the past few years, dude, like, I've read a lot of folks' blog posts. I've seen right. their Instagrams. I've seen their fucking 15, 30-second blips. But when you get to, like, engage, yeah. it's fucking priceless, man. Well, but, I mean, the fact that we got to talk about world politics in Saudi Arabia with Derek Woodsky, who, you know, normally people would be like, ah, oh, sets, reps, and here we are discussing, you know, the, the geopolitical landscape of uh, allowing women to drive in Saudi Arabia. You just get an authentic deal. And that's kind of where we had the podcast and like part of the, you know, the talk to me, Johnny, where I got to kind of interview was um, I know the information that I want the people to hear, like, because I know what I want to hear. And as kind of a fan, I'm like, you know, let's pull it out. And I think that's why those things are so rich. But we get the same thing. Are you going to record it? Is it going to be streamed live? Can I buy it after? Yep. No, you got to show up. So, Derek, we do offer an online course. And the challenge in creating it was how do we take our big thing? Luke will tell you better than I can. It's all about providing that experience. They're going to remember more so the feeling leaving than the specific information you deliver. Right. So you can't do that online. But one thing we 
I think we've done a, a good job at is forcing people to think. And I stole a model, a learning model from... Developed a model. He developed a model. No, I stole it from, No, we developed it. Right? We developed it that I, from one of the models I stole. <laughs> but it, it, it's called... A, you, uh, stealing makes it seem so cheap. Borrowed. I, I applied a model that I learned in school. How about okay, that? that's perfect, okay. Perfect. So it's I incorporated called, my education. Yes. I, I used my degree one time. Yes, I'm, exactly. So it was called the KWL model. So anytime, say that our topic is hypertrophy, for example, uh, you write down everything that you know about hypertrophy before reading or watching our, our video, and then write down anything you want to know. So yep. you're thinking about... What could I possibly want to know? It's not an easy task. And finally, you go through the learning process. You take the little quiz, and then you write down everything you learned. So without, we asked them not to go back and reread stuff to write down the notes. It was just what could you pick up on just to try to force people to, to think and hold on to information because they're taking this course over three, six months versus yep. two days like we taught at a seminar. And I wanted them to be able to recall information from three months ago. Mm -hmm. And then, because we wanted to build piece by piece, and that was an interesting challenge. Unless it's John Custer, who, two years. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but JC's a fucking saint. Um, but what we did do as well to try to, to retain the experience is every week, two weeks, we have uh, live office hours where you have exactly. an opportunity to interact, right? And it's... It's not the most efficient shit to do, but it's the, we, we, we feel yeah, obligated because we know. We know. Yeah, yep. But here's the thing. They take the methodology course, and then they have mm -hmm. to show up here to Austin, Texas, to test and earn their position. So the methodology is just the online learning. For That's them to exactly become coaches, they yeah. have to show up in person and go through the trials and tribulations and this. They have to... No, it's easy. It's fun. It's a good time. They have right to, intern? They, they not yeah. only have to come in and prove it, but they have to prove that they know the information. We yep. observe them, you know, and, uh, you know, take them on this roller coaster, which um, is pretty interesting because we do get emails from people that are like, oh, I'm signing up for the methodology. Uh, when are you coming to Germany or Eastern Europe or here and here? And we're like, it's in Austin, Texas. I'm like, well, I don't yep. think I can come. And I'm like, well, then we'll let you know when we're in fucking maybe Munich. Yeah, year. when the day when comes out, we expand, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. and, and that's what we did with the Polycom group is methodology or theory was all online. Mm -hmm. And then we had a practical for the different course levels. And, and what people have to understand is it's, I mean, unless you're learning purely for personal development, which I fully commend. I mean, I, I think everybody needs to do some of that in different areas of their life. But if you're using it, with the intent to improve your business, improve your coaching, improve whatever you're doing in terms of an influence on another person. And you don't think that what you're learning is worth the practical experience of interacting with the experts in which you're learning from. I just really have to question your, your commitment to your craft. Um, and I think in particular with like Power Athlete, you guys have done a, a huge amount of work at creating a community. And people use words like tribe and all that shit nowadays. But at the end of the day, it's you've created a community of like-minded coaches and participants, athletes, that when they get together, and, and this is something that people have to understand because I come from the same background professionally, is we're not just bringing these people together so we can critique a back squat or talk about the intricacies of the trap three raise or some ridiculous shit. What you're really doing is getting people together, 
to coach, to influence, to make them perhaps fill in the gaps of their own uh, information processing style. So, you know, you may get a guy that's methodology is fantastic. They may be theory based. They're great, but they just have never been around a coach right. and they don't know how to communicate their, their incredible knowledge to somebody. And those practical experiences, not only interacting with you guys as a staff, but interacting with other, which I can only assume are going to be great coaches that show up guys that got it, girls that got it. Maybe they got the coaching way better than the theory and methodology even. And all of a sudden that, that person that has this huge gap in their game is like, Oh, this is how it works. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And all of that closes in. And all of a sudden you've created a complete package of a coach or an athlete participant and not somebody that is still going to be struggling six months from now because they took uh, six months of an online course that has no intention of ever standing in front of you and filling in those gaps. And you know what, it, what it does too, Woodski. And I think you can, uh, you can reaffirm your biases by just watching something that's canned and non-reactive. Whereas yeah. if you're like, if you interpret something and you ask John Wellborn, oh, so you mean I should do it this way? You're like, no, I didn't fucking say that, dude. You know, like yeah. people would just come to reaffirm their way of doing yes. things the in person. And like, we do not acquiesce. We do not back down, well, you know. And do, do you guys remember in college, I remember we had a, a, a couple people that um, would, you know, like let's say you're in a class and I remember they were auditing a class, which means that they were taking the class, but they weren't getting a grade. Those people were always fucking useless in the class. I had a, you know, I was in a, um, uh, like a small, like a uh, class. And I remember I forgot for whatever reason, the guy was auditing the class. And I remember we had a partner deal and the guy was fucking awful. And I always remember thinking, and I remember even saying it to him, like, you're not very good at any of this stuff. Um, is it because you're auditing? And he's like, oh yeah, it really doesn't matter. I'm just here for the yeah. knowledge piece. And I'm like, well, you know, not only am I here for that, but I'm here for a fucking grade and I'm here to slay this thing. So fucking either you get your shit going or get the fuck out. Slay everything. And um, I just think when you don't have like, a, you know, like let's say you take the methodology course and you're taking the methodology course to pass it so you can show up and earn your block and you have to learn this information because we're going to test it. There's like a greater sense of urgency. And while I'm sure there are people out there that, you know, that love to learn for the sake of learning and just being involved in it for the, you know, the, you know, I guess you could say the osmosis of being so that I can absorb this amazing stuff. Most people have to learn it because they have to be tested and they have to drive. Uh, right. and uh, like that stuff where it's like, oh, I just want to take it. Like I'm going to audit it. Like there's no fucking sense of urgency. You know, we have people in there that are like, oh, I have no intention of ever taking my block. And it's like, who are you? You know, be fucking present, be involved. Like, you know, like, uh, you know, as my brother Rob would constantly tell me the chicken contributed to breakfast, the pig was committed. <laughs> and he right. always, he always said that he always like, if you're going to be something, be a pig fucking commit to something. And, um, I think with a lot of things, it's very easy to see it online in the webinar and feel like you kind of want to put one toe in, but not really this fuck show up, buy a ticket, earn your place, man, stand up and fucking be judged. And, um, you know, that's the only way you're going to find whether or not it has really helped you and you've really learned and done what you need to say that you did. Yeah, I agree 100%. And I, I think that's such a strong statement to be made. It's, uh, I remember jokingly saying one time, when I was being interviewed for some shit and I said, well, if I ever walk into a neurosurgeon's office and instead of a degree, he has a participation trophy from Harvard, I'm out. 
right? Because it's there, there's a level of expectation for certain things that just can never be overemphasized. And I think the moment, and I don't care what it is, I don't care if you're a, a dance instructor or an art teacher or a strength coach, if you decide that you're going to make your living or the value of your existence based off of other people depending on you and what you know or believe to know, and you don't try to be the very best version of whatever you are at that thing for their sake, then there's something fundamentally wrong with your own moral compass, mm -hmm. you know? And a lot of people just don't give a shit about that. They, they, they want their bank account to go up and they, they don't care whether or not the information they have is accurate or not. And, you know, competition will sometimes skew people from giving correct information. And, and that's happened over the last five years. And it's starting to write itself with companies like yours and a few others that are out there. But what was happening is you're getting into situations where so many people were trying to pick up the torch of the uh, lecturer strength and conditioning course symposium style that, you know, if you have 16 guys talking about elbow flexion, by the time you get to number 16, he's changed the actual physics of it so much to try to sound unique that none of it makes sense and none of it's correct. And then if you come back as number 17 and be like, no, the elbow flexes or extends, that's it. All of a sudden, you're looked at as the one that is blasphemous and being the shitbag for telling everybody the honest truth. And that's what I believe is so powerful when you can get people in the same place and have them together and you can be okay. So this is what's being spoken on. These are the theories and concepts of athletic development. These are the principles and ideas of human performance. Which ones are right? Which ones are wrong? It's going to take us some time to have this conversation. And honestly, the only way to do it is in person. And how do I develop the context to evaluate? Yes. Right? Yeah. So, and going back to that profession, you know, what you were saying there, Woodski, about, you know, if you're making your your buck or your your every people are relying on you. It it's what I'm just it it, it took me back to because I'm getting into the CSCS stuff. I never took the the test. I have texts. I just ask him and he fucking knows. It's like he's my Google on that side of things. But I figure I'd dive into it. And I, I the first thing I thought is like, why are why are CrossFit coaches so averse to, to fucking testing into this thing. And I shouldn't say right. all CrossFit coaches, right? I'm not going to say that, but I was once this guy. I was this fucking guy. Like, you don't need that shit. Just do this. And now I'm freaking, I'm reading through it. I'm like, man, this would have been useful fucking six years ago. Right. You know, and it's, right. it, 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 why not? I mean, why well, not I, just fucking immerse uh, yourself? Your failure. No. It's not an easy test. No, man. no, no. What it is is when you've sunk everything, like your entire existence, your belief system, your fucking wardrobe, your friends, your community, and everything into something, people are very protective of that. But so, a lot of it so, substantiates yeah, a lot but, of the shit. But if all of a sudden you go in and you look outside and something pokes a hole in what your existence is, now all of a sudden it becomes next to him, uh, like it, it's some, it's it's a place that they don't want to look. Uh, I had a conversation yesterday with my mom. She called me. Uh, uh, you know, uh, we were raised Catholic, and 
this, you know, my mom, like, you know, this was a big deal in her life. We went to church every Sunday and it was this big thing. And uh, here's my mom at 79 years old where she can't go to church because uh, the Catholic church will not step up and defend and they will continue to lie. And, you know, these children have been uh, you know, molested by priests and this, you know, has happened forever. And like this whole thing has come to the head. And uh, she's like, I don't know how anybody can uh, call themselves a, a Christian or a Catholic or a parent and still go in and put money into the collection plate for a church that has uh, knowingly hurt children. And she's mm-hmm. like, I can't go. And she's like, I, I'll never step foot in the Catholic church again. And she's like, I was raised in the church. Like, like this was something we did. I took you guys every Sunday. Like this was a big thing. And she's like, I, I can't do it. And she's like, I don't know how anybody else can. And she goes, what they need to do is every single person that has ever had a knowledge at any hierarchy, they need to fucking literally set that thing on fire. And all those people need to uh, either need to be on the pyre or go to jail. She's like, they hurt right. children. They, you know, they knew this was happening. They, they transferred people around. They paid people off. They've for what? And uh, uh, she, like, was so fucking fired up about this. And she's like, when was the last time you went to church? And I'm like, uh, last time I was in a church was when dad passed away. And she's like, are you going to go to Catholic church? I'm like, no, I'm not going. She's like, good. She's like, you shouldn't. And she's like, the only way that they're going to know what they did was wrong is if not a single person walks in there anymore. But, yeah, when you talk to people, people are like, oh, you know, this and the, you know, the Holy See and this whole thing. And I think people's belief system, whether it be CrossFit, religion, whatever, when all of a sudden people are afraid to see the holes because that deteriorates the fabric of it. So not to fucking get off uh, too far off a tangent, but I think with a lot of the CrossFit people, the methodology is such that this is all you need. And that's what Glassman told them. You, you know, there's not been a single contribution by an exercise scientist in the history of fucking science or of, of exercise. That's what he said. So why is it that something, I swear to God, he said this. So why is it that something like Power Athlete would come along and discuss principles of exercise physiology and exercise science that either might help or might hurt because the methodology is already set. So I think that's why we run into people that are really, you know, fucking adverse to it. And we know because we, we worked with the community. Mm-hmm. We stood up. I mean, dude, we literally traveled the world, stood up and told them, been like, um, you guys are training for fitness. Now we're going to train for performance. What do you mean? They're right. not... Uh, they're one and the same. No, they're not. Let me tell you. Athleticism is you... just a lower version of fitness. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Oh, Jesus. Yeah. The, uh, as, I, as I'd say to them over and over again, uh, athleticism is the pretty girl that walks into the room with a bunch of fucking donkeys. Mm-hmm. Like, everybody knows when they see it. They don't know what it is. They just know that girl's a smoke show, and she's better than everybody else. That's athleticism to your fitness. Mm-hmm. Yep. Informing well, is important. I mean, I just can't... We had... I guess, listened to a podcast guest in preparation of having him on, and I heard that, I guess, fitness is the, the sport of metabolism and went into this 10, 15-minute you know discussion. Because uh, metabolic conditioning is really the sport of metabolism. So the, metabolism and metabolic, I mean, it's, it's dude, da- we heard that stuff. I was like, this is crazy. It's dangerous what? because then, I don't know, 50,000 people are going to listen to that and then just take that. As, as gospel is truth versus right. diving in and challenging. Well, 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 and you know this. I mean, we can all, uh, like Adolf Hitler, for whatever he was famous for, we all know, made a good point. If you're, uh, what did he say? If you're going to tell a lie, tell a big lie. And tell it yeah. often because nobody believes a small lie. The premier podcast. Right? Strength and conditioning. It, it's true. And, and, uh, and people fucking freak out when you're like, I can't believe you quoted Adolf Hitler. I'm like, well, yeah, I mean, you know, fucking madman. And, uh, you know, there's been many madmen. So, you know, history remembers them how they remember them. But his statement, his past doesn't make his statement any less true. Mm-hmm. 
no. Well, yeah. and you know what the thing is, is it's really hard to fast food package the linear diversity of human performance. So when you think of like even the argument against muscle over movement groups, right? Because that's the other one, the Ido Bortels versus the Jay Cutlers. The, you look at all these different things. Um, you look at powerlifting versus bodybuilding. Um, you know, even down to those tribal lines in the sand where the idea is, well, if all you're doing is moving a barbell or a dumbbell, you'll never truly hypertrophy a tissue in isolation. If all you do is isolate muscle groups, you'll never have you know, ballistic activity or dynamic or stretch shortening cycles that are going to be beneficial to the athlete. And when you look at all these different things, it's people trying to specialize a statement for the sake of a niche market so that they can monopolize an area of the market because it is really hard to stand in front of people in a, in a, in a small package statement and be like, okay, training muscles is important. Training movement is important. It's just two ends of the same string, and it's a secular cycle of starts and finishes for the duration of an athlete's life. Based on whatever sport they're playing, there will be greater focus on certain aspects. If you're a bodybuilder, movement takes a backseat to, to muscle. If you're a wrestler, movement's going to take the front seat to muscle that takes the back seat. But people don't want to hear that because then they have to go, Okay, shit. So what you're actually telling me is that periodization isn't bullshit. No, periodization is not bullshit. In fact, there might be a scientific way to put all these little pieces of a puzzle together to create one giant pie that keeps people not only healthy, but getting better and secular, secularly better for the duration of their entire life. Yeah, but and, the problem comes down to is that that periodization is personalized. And what people forget is that you can look at my program, which has certain periodization and compare it to yours, and it's going to be right. different. And they can't understand that there's certain things like uh, sleep, food, exposure, this. I mean, all of these, uh, you know, uh, external factors. Uh, you know, think about, you know, uh, I had a job where I had to do basically every day for seven months. You have something you're peaking for once every four years. So right. then it's like the problem is, is that nobody wants to take the time to understand the nuance of the individual. Mm -hmm. They just want, hey, just just tell me what to do. Just tell me what to eat. Right. Just tell me this. Yeah. And tell me uh, this. Um, yeah, it, you know, so, so you're saying if I follow this to the T, I'll get where I want. And being right. like, it's not that fucking simple. Nope. And it's complex. It's in depth. Um, good periodization takes time and thought. You have to look at ends in correlation to beginnings. You have to, you know, God forbid, like when I was training Kurt Roberts for that four year uh, cycle into the last Olympics, you know, we went to a couple indoor world championships. He was a U.S. champion. We didn't make the fucking Olympic Games. And he was ranked number two in the world or number three in the world at the time. So it's like when you look at all these different factors and then you throw in the, the coincidence or the, the outcome that sometimes people get injured in very weird ways or sometimes they don't qualify for the one thing that they were training for, well, what do you do then? Okay, what does that have to do with, with periodization? Well, it's all encompassing. So when you look at all these different things, you have to understand the beginning and the end. You have to look at the individual and what their physical capabilities are. And then you're going to have to draw some conclusions. And this is the thing that a lot of people don't like to hear, but as much of an individual flower as we are, 
if we take 15 hammer throwers, like which I was, and they're all between say 5'11 and 6'3, have a general physical structure makeup, you can kind of get away with all doing the same <laughs> shit. <laughs> yeah, but the reason is, is that the sport pre-selects yeah, for the, a you're certain... At the end of, you're at the I mean, end of that selection I mean, as you're sitting here talking chain, about yeah. like the alpha and the omega, I mean, you're, you know, yeah. uh, the the context and you're, you're putting it into is trial and error experience, yeah. uh, having to look outside. I mean, I've run into problems that with our own stuff and had to reach outside to other people and be like, oh, like I remember we did a huge testing block and as I'm watching these videos and like going through everybody's numbers were pretty good but all of a sudden you know you kind of put some controls in and then people are like what do you think i'm like ah the numbers are all over the board it's just everybody's really slow and i'm like you guys lift weights and to go back to like zangus who always told me don't lift weights like old people have sex slow and careful you got to be violent with the bar right and uh, i remember asking i'm like you guys did we never discuss compensatory acceleration and fred hatfield and anything and they were like no um why i'm like I was taught from day one, if I was going to move the bar, it didn't matter if it was 135 or 500, you move it as fast as you can at all times. Yep. And that translated into playing. And then that took us in this whole different direction, put a bunch of compensatory acceleration in and started really talking about mechanical advantage increases. So does bar speed. Next time we went to test, all of a sudden, everybody's just fucking moving as fast as they can, violent. All of a sudden, everybody's yep. jumping out the deal. And it was just purely basing off observation. And there was something where... Uh, you know, you forget pieces that you remember and you think like, fuck, did we talk about this? Yeah. But it so was much also, information. Yeah. And it was how we were communicating it. And we found a way. And I love Fred Hatfield's writing style because he took very complex things and made them digestible for the, yep. the power athlete. Right. And it, we were able to relay that message to our community because they were still trapped in reps, sets, numbers, more importantly, and squatting and repping out for points mm -hmm. exercising for points yeah right well and and here's also a teal uh deal too you think about for the majority of the athletes like derek in very particular the training and the lifting and the uh all the you know preparation work was uh you know was the ingredients to get him to execute the sport so now you have something where it's like i was never trying to be the best at weightlifting like right. these were just the tools that I was using to try to be a better version, to be able to execute my job. Like nobody was asking you like, Hey, uh, you know, you threw the hammer, but what, what did you hit in your lifts? Nobody ever asked me what I squatted, what I benched. They right. just knew that I was able to do my job. And yep. I think we get into this thing where people want to say, well, you know, this guy's been training for this quad. He hit these numbers. He's ready. And then the dude right. shows up and doesn't fucking qualify because uh, he's probably a head case. And, like, he was on the biggest stage, hadn't, like, emotionally got past this. Even though he'd done the work, he wasn't ready for greatness. And I always talk, man, you got to be, like, either got to be a little dumb or, or you know, uh, a little lucky. But sometimes you find yourself in these huge situations. And by, you know, not realizing where you are and what you're doing, you sometimes do better. I think when people start yep. looking around and, you know, they hear the roar of the crowd and they realize they're here, then all of a sudden the fucking pressure gets to them. And uh, it all shows up. Yeah. And, and we're, we're yeah. constantly in this community of people that are so focused on the training because the training is how they're competing in it. Like the CrossFit yeah. thing. I'm like, I always love the, uh, you know, I'm trying to be the best at exercise. Yeah. Kenny you know? Powers. Yeah, Kenny Powers. And that's a God honest truth, man. I wasn't trying to be the best at training. I, I, I didn't need to be the strongest in the gym. I just needed to be able to use the strength and the technique and the things that I put together to be the most successful on the field. And well, you're 100% correct. And when you look at the correlative personality traits of, say, a sport of CrossFit, I mean, all you have to do is draw a conclusion to sports of the same nature, distance running, marathon, middle distance, the sport itself 
is the training. The training is the sport, right? So there's no separation in the two. There's a direct correlation to what's happening Monday to Friday that is actually going to determine what happens on Saturday. It's very clean sports. They're very simplistic in that nature. Um, and the thing, what I've saw in particular with the sport of CrossFit in the last couple of years that is troubling is because their methodology has been so one-dimensional in terms of an ideology coming from a, a source uh, internal, what happens when these athletes do have a setback in ACL, a shoulder, et cetera, and they realize that they can't move for the sake of moving, but they don't have any of the basic tools in terms of actually reestablishing compliance and structure in the system yeah. because that part never gets talked about. You know, you learn how to clean to clean. You learn how to snatch the snatch. You learn how to do snatches to exercise. And it's like, hmm, that's weird because you have all these other issues that are related to joint compliance that are a mess, but they're never addressed. So you get into a, like a repeating cycle of, well, I did snatches to learn how to snatch. I got injured. Now I'm doing snatches again to rehab so I can learn how to snatch again yeah. and they get injured again. And, and it's a failing system. The problem is like all failing systems that last, it's because it's typically a war of attrition. Yeah. So as long as you're throwing enough bodies at the war, eventually some are going to rise and get through. When I was in college, we used to refer to it as the crocodile basically the crocodile method of strength and conditioning would had a coach that just trained us so hard that those that survived were basically the equivalent of the dinosaur that survived evolution. Right. And, and that's what happens with a lot of these guys. You're going to get outliers that have the physical integrity to deal with the volume of maybe not the best training parameters, but they get through it because they have a genetic resilience that 90% of the population will never experience, you know? I, for me, I always used to refer to him as the hairy shoulders, right? So you see a guy that has hairy shoulders, fucker never gets injured. You know, he's got those primate genes. So oh, I'm, I'm never, I'm never injured. Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You got hairy yeah, shoulders? You, you, oh, you, you should. Yeah. Have hairy shoulders. Oh. Wait, hang on. Woodski, what? are you plugged into the wax tax? I am. That's actually true. You know what? Because mm -hmm. I, I reposted the uh, the uh, 40-year-old version yeah, video. Yeah, yeah. He's, you know, he's hairy remember, like animals. Do you remember Ryan sugar. Tucker? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay, so Ryan had that theory too, right? And I remember. So I, always, I, I always thought it was the low sloping forehead, and I used to joke, um, you know, from <laughs> like, Clan of the K Bear that he had the yeah. memories. You remember in the book, and and 100%. so yeah, the, the Neanderthals had, you know, couldn't learn, but they had the memories of the past. And so we used to always joke. I'd be like, and, you know, and of course, in you know, in the NFL, how many guys? I was probably the only one that actually read Clan of the K Bear. Uh, yeah. But I remember joking and being like, "Oh, the guy's got the memories." Like, what are you talking about? I'm like, "Clan of the K Bear." They're like, "No," oh. and I'm like, "Uh." You know, so yeah, it's uh, but yeah, so Ryan Tucker thought it was a shoulder hair, huh? Shoulder, yeah. He said when he used, to, if he had the lineup against a, a defensive player that had really hairy shoulders, <laughs> he knew it was going to be a long game because the guy would just keep punishing uh, him. Uh, dude, I'm, so, I'm so sorry you were at Cleveland. Yeah, I tell you uh, what, like I, I like I always, uh, I've I've told these guys that there's certain outcrops or certain places in the NFL where like it's the island of misfit toys. When you go there, you just don't come back. And like no. forever, your NFL experience is awful. One of those is like Cincinnati. The other one's Cleveland. And like whenever I meet dudes that played at Cleveland, I'm always like, oh, I'm so sorry. And they're like, it's, it, it, yeah, it was bad. It's not your fault. Yeah. yeah. And, and like, <laughs> no, no, and, man, and then, it was fine. It was good. Everything was fine. No, no, no. And then the best good, is, is in Witzke's like, oh, is it Cleveland? I'm like, was it as bad? He's like, it was fucking bad. <laughs> it was bad. It was, it was, it was, it was, it was, it was so bizarre, bad. man. Like, 
I remember like dude we, i wish uh, you could have seen philly or like or or i mean can like or, or cities, yeah or right? just just to see things win just to feel good riding on a plane kicking ass yeah. where you knew that, that you were going to go in and win every game just yeah yeah well and that's the thing like cleveland what we we won all but one home game that year missed the playoffs by like i think one game some i think the uh, phil dawson rule came into effect that year because of that whole uh debacle and it's funny because our home opener was against the steelers and they they kicked the shit out of us. And then we came back the next weekend and just smashed Cincinnati in this burner, like 51 point game. But I remember walking off the field in our first home opener, the shit that that crowd would say, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, you would just be like, you know, any of this, like the world is becoming more PC, you know, people yeah. are not like aggressive with their words. Oh, no, no, it's not, no, that's true. None of it's uh, true. Dude. It's like filter was off. We know? were in New York playing in a preseason game and like right behind our bench, this dude was just literally dog cussing us and this and fuck you. And uh, one of our guys turned around and the guy was literally sitting there with his wife and kid. And it was just like, you fucking piece of, you know, just everything yeah. went over. And one of the dudes was like, uh, hey, is that your wife? And he's like, yeah. He's like, I'm going to fuck her up, you know, and starts talking shit. And he's like, I'm going to let your kid watch and starts talking shit. <laughs> and the Christ. dude goes fucking ape shit crazy, goes gets yeah. security and starts yeah. telling security that like, you know, like one of the guys is like, you know, saying this to him and the whole deal. And like, I'm sitting there thinking and like, I just remember his statement. Security's like, what do you want to do? And he's like, this is my right. I bought these seats to curse at these people. This is my right. Who are they? to say this to me and i just remember thinking like wow this dude That's literally it. bought these seats and he feels that he paid the right to chuck shit to players and now yeah. they're fucking basically calling him out and talking shit better to him and the dude was upset when he got security and security was going to come down and do what to us yeah kick you off the field yeah i mean I'm like it, it like it was a preseason game like i was standing there with my head like i couldn't even find my helmet i think i hit it so they yeah. wouldn't put me back in. Wouldn't put you in. We were walking off the field and we had actually won the game, but Anderson got a little close at the end with the score and took a, a bit of a, a bell ringing. And, uh, and so we were coming off the field and just as we were coming off, we had won the game and we had one of our players was being helped off. He had gotten wrecked. I think it was an ACL. And I remember we're all coming off and Anderson sort of goes over and lifts the guy up a little bit to help carry him off the field. And this guy, clear as day, I can remember it like five feet away, was just like, Anderson, I wish that was you, you know? Yeah. And it's just like, I just won the game for you dude, motherfuckers, right? Dude, <laughs> like, so, so, so one day at practice, right? This was by far the, when I realized that uh, pro football fans are like the lowest level life form other than YouTube commenters. Yeah. Um, they bring this guy to practice and the dude shows up and it's him and his kid. And he has these like two things that are like, like they look like steel erector sets on his arms and there's all these pins and wires and all this crazy shit. He's got this thing that's connected to his head and they like bring him out and like this wheelchair and like, we're like, see the dude and we're like, what the fuck is this? And like, you know, uh, you know, they get up and Andy Reid brings him out and he's like, Hey, you know, um, this is one of our diehard fans. And he took his son to the Meadowlands in New York and as they were leaving, as he was walking down the stairs, somebody kicked him in the back and he tumbled oh. down like three flights of stairs, shattered every bone in his upper body and his neck. And they had to go and pin all the bones. And um, 
uh, what do you call it? Like, uh, um, uh, fucking stabilize him. Like, uh, you know, with the he halo. Was, yeah. In, in this halo thing with his hands. And the guy was like, yeah, it was, you know, we we're like, what the fuck happened? And he's like, literally then we were leaving, we had won. And some guy said, fuck you. And kicked him. Cause he was wearing an Eagles Jersey. He was holding his son's hand, walking down the stairs, kicked him. The dude tumbled down and like almost fucking died. And they like, they brought him out and like, uh, they asked him, they were like, you know, the team felt so terrible, you know, this, and like, is there anything you want to do? He goes, I just want to go out and like, thank the guys. And like, I'd love to go to practice. And he shows Jeez. up and we're like, we signed a bunch of shit for him. And I'm like, holy fuck. Like one, who's the piece of shit that kicked this dude? Like yep. low level life form. But the fact that this dude almost dies shatters and his one fucking goal is to come out and hang out with us fucking dickweeds. I'm like, you right. gotta be fucking kidding me. <laughs> and I just remember thinking like one, I'll never, I'll never go to an NFL game as a fan. Like I'm fucking, uh-huh. I'll never go. And two, yeah. uh, I'm not really a fan. Like I used to stand there on TV timeouts and watch people literally beat the dog shit out of each other. We would just yes. stand there and be like, I can't believe these people are fucking like haymakers fighting over what? And it just, it it just, the culture was insane to me and the fans are even more, I mean, they are truly diehards, but I'm just like to be able to go carry out violence on somebody who happens to be purchased a a different Jersey just blew my fucking mind. It's, it's a mind blower. After I finished with the Browns, I went to one NFL game and it was actually in uh, Foxborough, went to the Patriots. And I remember like making my way through that parking lot after the game. And I remember having the same thought. I was like, you know, I don't think I'll come back. I think I'm good. I think I'm going to, this will be a sport that I'll occasionally partake on my couch. You know, it's uh, because there is, there is a, an extreme mentality that uh, I'm glad I got to experience because it was an important human experience, but Holy shit. But isn't that part of, doesn't that that lineage trace back to like the Roman Empire and fucking like the gladiator era and I mean or no and and the well, purest think form about of tribalism on at, in America is sports least, tribalism yeah yeah I mean but but at least the gladiators went up there and died well like, that's the difference like, and what I'm getting like, at I, so, but the people in the crowd I'm sure were drunk and surly yeah right? oh yeah I mean you know, they so talk like, about the Roman and that's mob. why why you you all have different perspectives on this thing and I'm, I'm not I don't know I guess I'm I'm indifferent I like going to sporting events I just don't give a shit about the drunk people fighting I, you know fucking whatever if a guy's gonna try and pick a fight with me I'll just talk my way out of it but you guys were out there as the proverbial gladiator I'm not like in the term that people use on a weightlifting platform about war and warrior but you're out there entertaining <laughs> the fucking people and like you've been <laughs> on the other side it. of it I, I, and that's why it's I, like I don't want to fucking watch this stupid no, shit you guys are acting like assholes in the crowd it, yeah it, it just was so weird for me to like um, I, I like what was even weirder is when uh, I remember like after the game I remember uh, we were playing in Kansas City uh, and I like we were like walked out to the cars. You got to wait for everybody to leave. And we saw the buses. And we were playing Indy. And I saw Peyton Manning. And uh, so I rolled over and I was rapping with Peyton. And like somebody screamed because all the people stand up and they watch. You know, like Wellborn, who the fuck are you talking to? That fucking piece of you know, like so mad. And I'm like, you don't think we're all friends? <laughs> like, like, like yeah, for the most like, part, right? yeah. Like I was stoked to see Peyton, and we were fucking laughing about when we were in New York and fucking you know uh, you know. So I, I went to a Yankees game with Peyton, which is hilarious because his head is fucking huge. And he was wearing this like Yankees hat. And I, he's like, you think anybody's going to notice me? I'm like, dude, are you fucking serious? <laughs> yeah, serious? the yarmulke's not doing right? anything, and man. so we're sitting there watching and like we're having a good time and like, you know, a couple innings go and all of a sudden you can see people start like rubbernecking looking over. And he's like, 
I think we got to get out of here. I was like, yeah. We, and uh, I was with Skioli and some dudes, and we literally bolted because people started fucking like looking around. And he's like, oh, I thought we were going to last longer. I'm like, dude, your head is huge. <laughs> like, there's no fucking way they're not going to notice you. And, um, but fucking cool dude. And uh, I like that was what people didn't realize is that these are your friends. These are people you play against. You play on different teams and the whole deal. But yet people like live and die with this shit. And, um, it just, yeah, I just, it, like, I, I respect that people want to go. I just don't know if I would take my family to one of these things. No, no, yeah. it's, it's, it's hectic. It is fucking hectic. Did you notice this when you're down on the field? I'm sure you did. If a fist fight started 70 rows up, it immediately stopped your attention. Like you could be watching the game and be noise and chaos and, and everything's going on. But like back behind you at like 11 o'clock, two dudes would start a fist fight almost out of sight. And you would immediately be able to spot in the crowd. Well, yeah, because you see the melee, but you also see the guys with the, the yellow. energy, uh, right? Well, but, but oh, also yeah, yeah, the, the security see. guys wearing the yellow because they all yeah. wear yellow slickers. Yeah, converge. Yeah, would fucking converge. But like, I remember TV timeouts. We would always kind of stand there and be like, you see anybody? And they'd be like, ooh, 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 you know, fourth level. And we'd always like turn over and look and there'd just be some fucking fat drunk dude just getting his fucking ass wailed on. And then yep. the best is like it would always start and they would always let it go a little. And then security comes in and then that's when shit erupts because then yeah. everybody starts throwing bombs. So here's the thing. I can kind of get like so football is a relatively violent sport. Like there's kind of like a, a, a brutal nature to the sport. So maybe that like stokes up some alcohol fueled rage and you get in a fight. But what I don't understand is how fucking people get in fights at baseball games when there's just fucking guys out there swinging at a ball, jogging around. There's no excitement in that sport. But there I, every fucking Cubs game I've been to fight. Yeah, but don't people look like I was thinking about this. Like, I think people go to the games with the idea that, like, I have the right uh, to show up and try to fight somebody to prove, like, I'm involved in this. Maybe. I think, too, there's like I think there's two types of people. There's one person that goes to the game. And when someone hits a home run, they stand up and cheer for the greatness of that history. And then there's another guy that goes to a game. And when someone hits a home run is reminded immediately about how much of a failure he feels he is. All right. And then they have to take that animosity towards the fact that they have not achieved the life that they so chose. And they got to puke that energy onto another human being. Have you, what about that? Like, has anyone been to like a UFC match? Yeah. Live? Uh, yeah. Do people get in fights in, at that place? Uh, I actually went to a UFC fight. Yeah. Yes. I went to a UFC fight in Vegas. And the hilarious part was we were sitting, we had pretty good seats. And uh, all of a sudden, this fucking drunk dude shows up with these like four girls. Like, who know, whoever fucking knows how it's all going down. But these girls were fucking bangers. And like, this dude was fucking drunk, stupid. And so, uh, he, like, he starts kind of like, I don't know, like trying to be a big guy, talking shit. Uh, the entire row, so we're sitting here, he's sitting right in front of us. The row in front of us was an entire fucking gym, MMA gym. Yeah, like the Gracie brothers. That had shown up with their entire fucking gym to support one of the dudes mm-hmm. who was fucking fighting. And it wasn't like three or four. It was like 25 fucking dudes from their MMA school. And they're all wearing, like, different versions of the same right, shirt. Right. And they're all cauliflowered ears. And, like, you know, they're all, like anywhere from like 110 to 180 fucking pound, uh, you know, UFC, MMA, uh, BJJ guys. And uh, the guy like somehow gets into it, like one of the dudes and all of a sudden like fucking pushes this dude in the face and like pushes him into the row and like all other 24 dudes like fucking turn 
and fucking literally start climbing over people. And I see this thing and I'm like, whoa. And I take a big step like over the back and like yeah. people are like, whoa, whoa, get the fuck out of the way. Just yeah. trying to get away from this fucking ass whooping. Avoid an incidental arm bar. Oh, dude. And like literally a dude like jumps off of a chair, two foot kicks the dude in the chest. The other guy gets him in like a fucking rear naked and like is just pummeling these dudes. Security comes in. Thank God. Because uh, the dude was going to fucking die. They throw the entire MMA gym out and fucking leave the dude. Mm. And that drunk dude was and, Tex McQuilkin. And uh, I just remember, so, so it was the one <laughs> UFC fight I've been to. And uh, I'll tell you, the fucking, the best thing ever happened to that dude was security. But yeah. like, like you show up to something like that and the guy was like, push this dude. Like he's there with his 24 fucking boys, like the entire fucking row. Yeah, no, I'm out. I would not do that. So That's yeah, stupid. I have been to it. It was good. It was awesome. Yeah. I think you're more likely to get in a, in a tilt watching the UFC at a bar. Oh, yeah, for sure. Those, those are the guys that <laughs> are having hard, hard moments of reality. Right? <laughs> uh, they're like, but, they're like, but people don't fight at boxing. Like, uh, that's what's going to uh, be like my next. I, I've, I, you know, I've, I've been to, uh, to boxing. Uh, you know, I've, I've watched boxing at bars. I've never seen anybody get in a fight at, at something boxing-wise, maybe because the tickets are too expensive. But, but you know, fun. you know full well there's a shitload of fights outside a Rocky movie, mm-hmm. right? So it's just really? right? Yeah, because there's two type of people that go to Rocky movies: one who's cheering for Rocky, yep, and then the other who's booing Rocky. Does, that's uh, just who would boo Rocky? I don't know. Wasn't there a comic that did a whole skit about that uh, about going so to Bill, see Rocky? No. So the recent one on that I know of Rocky in Phil, Philadelphia is Bill Burr. I guess went on a rant about how shitty Philadelphia people are. Bill Bill Burgie? Bill, no, Burr. Bill Burr. And he's oh. like, "You made a fucking statue of a movie character. You don't have anybody <laughs> from Philadelphia except a fictional fucking guy, and that's who you make a statue for." And it just goes on like a twelve minute uh, rant. People, I think, honestly, think that that was a documentary, not a movie. And that's what he eventually gets into as well. But uh, well, Alf, I'm curious because you're well acquainted with the area. You should. I want you to listen to that and see if it's fucking. If you get a laugh Dude, out, dude. Uh, Philly was by far so coming from California, like um, you know in Berkeley, Northern California, and then going to Philly, like talk, talk about like a culture change. But I'll tell you this, like after the first year in the culture shock wore over that town, I love it. Like, like the people just their fucking like general grittiness, salty hatred of everything was so <laughs> fucking on point. Like, like there was no, like, like I, I just remember, uh, uh we were like, uh, we were in South Philly and uh, we were driving and like fucking this guy crosses the street and like, you know, like we were like, green light or whatever and the fucking slams and they're like what the fuck are you doing we're like uh we're looking for um i forgot uh, we were looking for nick's roast beef we're like nick's roast oh you're going to nick's roast follow me and like well the guy literally <laughs> went from slapping our hood on our car to uh we went to nick's roast beef with him <laughs> and it was like it, it just like is the strangest fucking place man like i like the people were fucking crazy uh the like everything about that town is like love you love you hate you hate you like you just didn't know and uh i love it uh, like it's by far one of my favorite places on earth and like it just i just always remember that dude slamming the hood hands on the car and being like fuck yeah uh nick oh yeah uh, you guys going to i'll uh, y'all follow me i'll take you over there and we ended up buying him a sandwich yeah there you go man. and that's philly in a nutshell <laughs> fucking funny, man. man i think it's been like two hours here uh, Woodsky, dude. you got anything else to do no man I'm, uh, <laughs> dude i was gonna say your uh your girl's probably in the background being like what's you're still on fucking wellborn she well when this started she left to go ride right yeah. so she's probably putting in miles somewhere we're uh, are you in colorado right now or where you at? yeah i'm in colorado until sunday oh gotcha 
Yeah, and then I'll fly over on Sunday. Ah, uh, so. dude, I see the uh, looks like the Sweevy Lou over there on your shoulder. I see the carving. Uh, is that yes. like the eagle? Yeah. So the little eagle yep. fish. I got a eagle, got killer whale, and I got a wolf. Well, dude, you saw the ones at my house, didn't you? I did. I did. Yeah, I got some West Coast Canadian native art. Yeah, no, dude, I I love it. Yeah, I saw it, and I'm like, ah. So, yeah, wherever you go, you got to bring it. So, cool. You got to. It's always funny. Like, you know, the majority of my family, you know, when people look at me, they're, I had German Scandinavian, but people don't realize, like, 40% of my immediate family is First Nations. Right. So what had happened is like my family, like my direct lineage is Swedish or German, you know, but where my parents grew up in that valley, um, there was a lot of native reserves. So a lot of my uncles married into the native culture. So for me, I always just it was normal. Right. It was always around us, you know, and it's uh, it's funny. I was just home uh, two days ago back up to British Columbia and it's uh there's just a there's a vibe to it you know so it's it's nice to always have it because it's it's very unique it's one of the truly unique things to north america that you know i'm not even going to get in a rant about it because it takes too long but when you look at our native cultures in this country and canada there is a massive amount of history that i feel for whatever reason is just like seeping away it's like slowly just vanishing out from beneath us. Art, uh, cultural art, cultural history, the dance, the the music, and it's uh, and I I think that my biggest fear is a hundred years from now people will be like native what, you know? Oh, you mean the people that own casinos? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. That's what they think now, and they forget that man. There was thousands of years of this indigenous history in these countries that is pretty unique. You know, it's not like anywhere else on the planet. Yeah. You know, yeah, it's pretty wild. So I've always been a fan. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm you know, I, I think I told you my granddad collected all that stuff, but I mean, he had a boat and they used to sail up. They had a place on, uh, on Bowen Island and used to yep. go like, uh, you know, and hit all these little things and he collected all that stuff. And so I have a bunch of it and I'm, yeah, I, I love it. I, whenever I see it, it always like brings a smile to my face because it reminds me of my family. Yeah, cool. reminds me of home as well. Awesome, yeah, for well, sure. Well, thanks, amigo. I appreciate the yeah, you know, Woodski, awesome. yeah. As always, dude, it's uh, I always feel better uh, for our, for our talks, and so uh, hopefully, the people listening get the same deal, and uh, we'll see you soon. Yeah, for sure. I hope uh, we didn't take them down too many rabbit holes today. Nah, <laughs> I love perfect. it. It was perfect. <laughs> All, right, All right, thank you very much. Travel safe, bro. Thank you. Safe travels. See you, amigo. See you. for you to empower your performance follow Derek Woodski on Instagram under the name at Derek Woodski he may knock social media a little bit but he certainly knows how to use it to entertain his page is fucking hilarious this is also a friendly reminder that if you have not been preparing for Wade's Day aka Wade's Wad you better get training Wade's Wad is no joke it is five rounds for time of 11 single arm power snatches 12 single arm dumbbell thrusters and 11 weighted pull ups the rep numbers signify the date that Wade lost his fight to cancer, November 12, 2011. You don't have to do the workout to donate, but I recommend finding a way to think about Wade on that special day. Until next time, bye!